Hey, all right, this is Tim Crisp, and you're listening to Road to the Skeleton Coast with Chris McCoggin. Chris, what's going on, Bubba? How are you? I'm doing well. Hello, Tim. Yeah. Hello. Hello. Nice to see you. So great to see you again, Chris. Of course, you and I are old friends, as, as old as they come. And uh, I mean, it's just incredible to uh, to get to share our friendship with uh, these listeners of uh, the Skeleton Coast podcast. Yes, I, I, I am in agreement with you. <laughs> <laughs> One million percent. One million percent. Well, how are you, though? How are things out in Portland during the uh, craziest time in the past uh, 80 years? Yeah, I mean, geez, I don't know. I guess all things considered, uh, I'm okay. I'm good. I'm hanging in there. I'm feeling good. Uh, yeah, it's been a strange a strange time, a strange year for obviously everyone. So, um, But it's about to be summer out here. And, uh, you know, with any luck, get out of the house a bit, you yeah. know, in a nice social distancing type of manner. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm looking forward to that. And yeah, man. Well, how about you? Well, Chicago, I hope is, uh, you know. Chicago's good. Yelling at the mayor all the time. And <laughs> all, nothing, nothing's really changed. It's only just gotten uh, several degrees worse since you've left. But... <laughs> Hey, uh, you do have a new Lawrence Arms record coming out. I'm not sure if you were aware of this, but that's what that's that's what I hear. That's what I've been getting some emails here and there about. So yeah, uh, I'm uh, I'm pumped. I'm I'm pumped, man. I'm excited about it. And uh, yeah, you know, interesting time to put out a record. But hey, why not? You know, I, it's been funny listening to. Um, you know, Brendan and I talked to Matt Allison a few weeks back, and it's something that when we talk about the record on the podcast is a pretty funny thing, the way that Skeleton Coast, uh, you know, being recorded in January, it's really found a way to grow into this time that we're in. <laughs> it's not like uh, things weren't weird then, but they've only gotten a little bit weirder. And somehow this seems even more poignant than it did when I first heard it back in March. Yeah, for sure. Um, I, you know, uh, interesting how that stuff happens. You know, I, yeah, the the sort of, I guess some of the things that maybe the record was capturing in a different way, kind of accelerated into the moment. And it's, yeah, it's sort of strange. I think, you know, we'd finished the record first week, second week of February, maybe. And it was really, you know, about a, what, a, a month later, uh, maybe a few weeks later that there were some early signs. And then a month later when things really um, kind of started to change more dramatically. Um, mm-hmm. And, so, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I you know, I don't know. I, I, I think may, there's a lot of, like, different uh, variables here that have gone into, like, that kind of collision of, of this moment we're living in and, and where the record came from and where we made it. And I just think there's a lot of, yeah, a lot of, a lot of different kind of things happening that have sort of collided into now. And, and I'm, yeah, so... 
Yes. So you so you weren't planning that though. <laughs> I wasn't planning uh, to be putting out a record in a pandemic. Yeah, while there's you know massive you know unrest and you know across a lot of different things happening in our country and in the world and mm-hmm. um, you know it's a yeah no of course not uh, I think uh, the record certainly captures a lot of different um, uh, I think. I don't know, themes or thoughts, but, but making it in a place that felt really remote um, in a kind of edge of the world or like off the beaten path location. And then I think just some of the, you know, I think Brent and I always kind of um, whatever in the, in the, in the Venn diagram of the Lawrence arms, we mm-hmm. t- typically find some kind of overlap. Um, and usually that happens without a ton of, uh, you know, front end thinking uh, it typically is just a way that, that we, we meet at this place that sort of we'll both get there eventually. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, so I think some of the themes we were both writing from in different ways. Yeah. It created this kind of moment. Um, so yeah, interesting, interesting stuff and an interesting time and just sort of series of events, I suppose that, that have led to putting this out. Um, but in some ways, I suppose I feel, I don't know, it feels unique in that way. And, and I, I like that about, you know, deciding to put the record out now still. And, and it generates, for me, I don't know, I just think about the experience of making a record and putting it out is not always tied into just the, you know, live touring of it. Like sometimes you make things for... I mean, I, I think I, I come from the perspective of like, you know, you make, you don't make a record just so you can tour. You make a record because something compels you to write and, and that becomes the driver. And so putting it out in this time, kind of a no brainer for me anyway. Uh, I yeah. think personally, it just felt mm-hmm. like the, the right thing. And, and yeah, it's just, yeah, very, very bizarre how, how it's all, I suppose, come together. It feels a little, I suppose, urgent in certain ways now. Definitely. And seeing um, the video for Last Last Words come out and it really just hammered home so many of, of those feelings, just a line like Dress to Kill for Oblivion. It's it's like, yeah, we've uh, kind of been doing that slowly for a little a little while now and i mean it's it's such a great song and that line in particular ties things in so well cool yeah i think you know obviously we live in a world where pre-covid or anything that's going on right now um uh we live in this world that's been accelerated by a lot of what is happening now and and i think you know, not that any of these songs, at least from my end, are so like overtly like political or commentary on, on you know, uh, the state of things globally or in, in America. But, uh, but hey, the experience of being alive, you know, and filtering, that filters through you in some way. And, and I think, um, yeah, that line speaks to a certain, I guess, feeling. Um, Mm-hmm. or or somehow a reflection of of the state of things and uh yeah and it feels highly accelerated at, in this current time yeah what yeah. what can you tell us about the song in particular how did it come out it's got just a, a real 
breeze to it. Um, it's very, very simple. Your word economy is fantastic. Did you have to sharpen it a lot or did it come out pretty clean? Um, so this one, I don't know. It'll be interesting to see like once the record's out, I guess. Um, I feel like overall my song, I tried to be really efficient on this record in general um, mm-hmm. with like, like just with parts, with, yeah, with word economy, with just uh, like really trying to edit at a high, at like really, really be like, critical on the editing piece and um and try to make things really seamless and and flow and really trim the fat a ton uh was was like an active kind of pursuit for me uh Mm -hmm. this song actually was a little like some of the songs came you know as they do when you write songs like some come a little easier some are a bit more labored um this one i it took me a little while to like puzzle and figure out I had what was like the I guess is like an instrumental hook which is kind of the kickoff of the song mm-hmm. um, just the progression which is there's nothing like magical about it or anything but there's a certain bounce to it and yeah and there's like a, uh, a trajectory of the way the chords go that I think is slightly skewed from maybe what would be just a really sort of standard entry mm-hmm. um, and so it was really built off that kind of feeling that bounce and and um, and then the part that it took me a little while to figure out was really how that chorus played off the verses uh, mm-hmm. that felt like there was some contrast there and there's like a, you know, a momentum and a story. And when we were in the studio, uh, figuring out the instrumentation and particularly like the guitars, what the guitars were going to do in that chorus to make it feel like a chorus was one of the challenges. And, um, so like as an acoustic song, it had a certain flow and like those kind of transitions made sense. But it was really when we were in the studio where I think it came together. And there's that moment of like, oh, this is not going to work. Like this is mm-hmm. just like this song's not going to make it to the other side. Like it's going to fall flat. And um, and then it was figuring out how the how the guitars worked in that chorus and just like the vibe a little bit and like like the like the drum pattern and like the movement. Um, that I think brought it really together, and mm-hmm. uh, uh, we used the we used in the chorus. It's like a uh, we used what's called an ebo. It's like an electronic bow for a guitar, so it's not a key, yeah. it sounds kind of like a keyboard. Mm-hmm. It's actually just a guitar uh, line that we played through it. Yeah. Um. So anyway, I guess all the circle back that like uh, you know I had the words and and they were sim- they're kind of like yeah simple and, and pretty clean and and just fitting them into the right places uh and really trying to play off the you know the contrast and then build out this kind of like ending and outro which was like really the key to like i guess the storytelling sort of abstract storytelling of the of the song you know i know we've talked about this before is like i don't i'm just not really the kind of songwriter that's like very um obvious or like super straightforward mm-hmm. uh, i think you can get the general idea of what the song's about i think it's it's got a certain tongue-in-cheek or not maybe not tongue-in-cheek more like sort of comical like laugh at yourself quality to it although yeah. it's a bit in the undercurrent um uh but but it does have that sort of abstractness that i think i really you know i just yeah sort of my style uh i suppose um and totally 
but yeah, I don't know. I think it's a, it's also just uh, the melodies were just really, really important to the song, you know, like really the, um, uh, the verse melodies and, and just like the, the way that those sit really, mm-hmm. really important to how the song feels. Um, so I don't know. It was, it was a bit of a puzzle one for me, but I think the goal is always to take something that maybe has a puzzle to it and try to make it feel as clean and simple as possible. Mm-hmm. And, and that's like the objective, you know, to get to simple and, and from something that maybe is a little messy. Yeah. Oh, I love that. I, I love the way the lyrics sit in the verse, how there's just so much space that gets left after you finish a line before you go into the next one. You don't waste any syllables. And it's cool, cool to hear that the uh, sound that I was excited to talk to you about is an Ebo because that's the whole new um, way about, yeah, getting into a different space, um, which is something that I think has become one of my favorite things about revisiting all of this work that you all have done together, especially the later half is the ways that you and Brendan and Neil have evolved into doing things that are still at the root of what this band is, but exploring new sonic territory and different types of dynamic shifts. This is uh, this is a shining example, I think. Yeah, cool. It was, it was really fun. It's like a fun problem to solve in the studio, and we were fortunate to be you know, at Sonic Ranch where we had some cool guitars to work with. We had Matt, obviously, who's just like getting these killer tones and um, and trying to solve problems with the core instruments as opposed to, you know, defaulting to like, I mean, not that there's anything wrong with like layering stuff up with, with different things, but I like the personal challenge of trying to solve problems with the guitar and, and mm-hmm. maybe, a, you know, just anything else lying around. Uh, that you may be able to manipulate with yeah. uh, as opposed to sort of being like, Oh, we need like, we got to pad this out with keyboards. Let's pull out the MIDI or whatever it is. And mm-hmm. uh, I like the, yeah, I, I, I enjoy the, um, I, I'm, I'm stoked that we got to a cool, unique moment using the same tools essentially. Yeah. So, I mean, things are obviously different from when he went into the studio but just looking at looking at the band itself, looking at the discography, like what does this record, Skeleton Coast, mean for you when you're looking at it? I feel like Metropole had a lot of stakes to it because it was the first one in eight years, and even though six years have passed between this one and um, and Metropole, you know how do, how does it differ for you? Yeah, um, good question. I, I mean, personally, I approached this record probably in a different way. I think when we made Metropole, it was like, it was a really like we're making a record kind of feel. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, I don't know. I, I was just really trying to write songs that I felt were cool and kind of challenging in some way, but felt like me and us. And I just had fun solving the challenges of writing these. And mm-hmm. I think making the record, the experience itself, which is like really different than what we've done ever done before. You know, we, we went 
you know, we're outside of El Paso in the middle of nowhere. It's really no distraction. Um, you know, so sort of the experience of actually being at the studio is really, really different. Just getting to kind of live there for two weeks and focus on, you know, hanging out with, with these guys, you know, who are really my family and, and getting a chance to solve these problems and make these songs was a really unique experience. And so I think that that really comes through in the way that the performance turned out, the way the production is. Um, uh, so, I mean, I, I think about, I think about records in sort of different phases, I guess, is, is, you know, that really early on pre who knows what we're doing phase, uh-huh. which is just collecting, you know, songs. Um, we've always been, at least most recently, you know, essentially texting voice memos and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I did a bunch of like, I guess, weird, like, I wouldn't call it journaling. I guess I would call it like, uh, um, like I basically had like a Dropbox folder, or like paper doc or something. And I was just like getting notes down to get ready to go into the studio. But so like phase one, just like, you know, all these ideas and getting songs together and then phase two really being there and things really change. And then, you know, you make it and then you start to feel, you know, you look back on it and you have that moment of like, Oh, we made this thing. And like, um, it turned out differently than I thought. And it always turns out differently than you think. And that typically is a really like nice moment. Um, when, you know, uh, you get, you get to the point where you see all the change over time looking back on, on where it came from. And so, I don't know, I guess all to say that like, I haven't really thought a lot about um, how it sits in the, you know, whatever in the, in the catalog. Uh-huh. I, my instinct is just that I think it's got an urgency to it and I'm really stoked on this, the songs and I know that we've said it before. And I've said it before and it sounds, I don't mean it to sound trite or something, but I just think that making a record is about trying to make a really great record. And, yeah. and that, that's got to be the launch, launching point. And we've been around for a long time and we could certainly just make a record because we can. And I, that doesn't feel like quite enough for me. Um, you know, like I, I there's got to be, got to be something there, and and I felt like there was something there for me on my side, certainly, and and obviously like that feeling continued as we as we move down the you know trajectory of making it. But you know, in the early days of writing the songs, I was like, I think I got like something here, and I think when people get a chance to listen to the record and they get a a sense of how the songs sit with each other, you know, that will become more apparent. Totally, totally. So we're going to play Last Last Words. I'm going to take this chance to uh, let our listeners know, and Chris, you might find this hard to believe, but uh, somebody recorded with the volume a bit too high, so the vocals are a little distorted on one side of the conversation that y'all are about to hear. (laughs) Um, Chris, thanks so much for coming on and and talking to me. it's just been like such a thrill to get to revisit all these records and the way that we're doing it here and to have this new one coming out is just, it's so freaking exciting. 
Absolutely, Tim. Thanks for thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure as always. <laughs> yeah, right. I'm stoked, man. I'm pumped. It's going to be fun. Only a few weeks now, huh? Yeah. All right. This is last last words, and then Brendan and I are finishing up slapstick on the other side. to Road to the Skeleton Coast with Brendan Kelly. Brendan, what's going on, Bubba? How are you? I'm pretty good, man. Just, uh, you know, hanging in there. Um, pretty glad that this is recording right now. Um, that seems to be yes. a lost art here at, uh, you know, the Road to the Skeleton Coast slapstick sub headquarters. And um, so today, I'm, I'm glad to say that we're all on board. My computer's doing a little weird thing. And it's pissing me off, but hopefully that's not going to, I'm just not going to pay attention to it. (laughs) I love that there is now a new branch of the slapstick family tree and it's just filled with episodes that were recorded and then Mm re-recorded. That's right. That's the most obscure branch on the tree. It's, you really have to be into string theory and alternate universe, like Rick and Morty type stuff in order to 
Oh, yeah. You ever see the butterfly effect with Ashton Kutcher? Yeah, dude. I mean, you know, uh, what I think that enough people don't talk about in that movie is that his name is Chris Treborn in that movie, which is literally like just a different space placement from Christ Reborn. It's like the most heavy-handed garbage that there's ever been. And it's Ashton Kutcher, and then they've got Nathan Supley, or Ethan Supley, rather, playing like a thug, which is a goth thug, which is hilarious uh-huh. to me. I mean, he's about... And like, I don't know at what point goths became like legitimately terrifying entities. I seem to recall the goths more like getting their asses kicked, but... Uh, <laughs> and I, I don't recall a lot of like large. I mean, he was like a proto juggalo, you know, more yeah. than anything. Mm-hmm. But even then, I don't think of the juggalos as being bullies. Maybe I'm wrong, but I think that their whole thing is about family and stuff like that, and like doing mm-hmm. drugs and like you know, like falling into a garbage can full of diarrhea and stuff like that. But but for fun, exactly. <laughs> you know. <laughs> The fun kind of diarrhea garbage falling into. Um, Hey, we are here this week to conclude the three-part saga that we have that we have set ourselves up for to talk about slapstick. We covered all the way up to the meeting of Mike Park at what's the name of that hot dog stand? Wrigleyville Dogs, across the street from the Metro. And now we're going to conclude that saga today. We thank you all for joining us this week. And we invite you to rate, review, subscribe on podcast player of your choice. We've got a Patreon, patreon.com slash better sandwich. And uh, Brendan like insisted that his friend came on uh, earlier this week, which was cool with me, but. Um, yeah yeah um what's his name again it's dan his name is dan um dan mm-hmm. andriano that's right dan andriano he plays in a band called slapstick uh well he used to um and that's kind of what you might probably know him from best but he's also in a band called the alkaline trio that's around now and they're they're you know they they started a long time ago and i just found out there's still a band um you know, apparently they it's just put out a new EP. Brand new three song EP. Uh, follow up to Is This Thing Cursed from, I guess that was 2018, although it feels like 2018 was both yesterday and 25 years ago. But, dude, it was pretty cool, uh, you know, just chatting it up with friggin' Dan Andriano. Yeah, um, you know, Dan's one of my oldest, dearest friends. And um, uh, when. <laughs> You know, I hit him up about doing the podcast, and he essentially was like, uh, I guess. And I'm like, dude, I promise you it will be fun. I'm like, you're, it's just going to be you and me bullshitting, and, you know, Tim will be there. And, uh, you know, Tim's got Tim's got good questions to ask as well. And uh, But it's not going to be anything heavy. It's not going to be weird. And he was like, I guess. I'm boring. You know, and then... Tim was excited about it and was also like, oh, fuck, Dan. Okay, what, what should we talk about? And I was like, we don't have to talk. Like, we don't have to plan anything at all. Uh, Dan, you know, Dan's one of my old friends. We'll just, we'll, it'll just be, hopefully, if, <laughs> if I know anything, and I don't, but if I did, I would say that um, if you're a fan of this podcast or me or Tim and you're also a fan of Dan Adriano, 
to hear um, the two of us just like bullshit about shit that happened like 30 years ago. Pretty fun. Um, and I, that's what I thought it was going to be. And I think it was. And afterwards, Dan hit me up and was like, that really was really fun. So for somebody, that's who, went awesome. into, for somebody who went into it being like, I guess, <laughs> you know. But well, Dan did hit me up too, and we uh, we reminisced a lot, and you know, just talked about being from the Fox River Valley and all sorts of stuff like that. Um, that's over on our Patreon, Patreon.com/slash Better Sandwich. But speaking of Dan, Brendan, you were on as you were a podcast about Alkaline Trio this week with me and David Anthony talking Mercy Me. That's correct. Yeah, um, I had a really good time. I think I talked a little too much, but um, I don't know if, again, if you're a fan of this podcast, um, you probably know that that's what happens a lot. I just talk too much. So, so um, if you like that, but you want to hear me talk about Mercy Me and the Alkaline Trio in general, um, you know, you should head over there to um, As You Were. Um, David Anthony, great dude. Tim, obviously, my um, best spe- speaks for you know my my involvement with him speaks for itself in terms of my accolades that I would um, heap upon him. So um, yeah, it was a uh, it was a good time, and uh, they they keep it nice and brisk, you know. None of these none of these mad we, slogs. We were uh, we, David and I were talking about how we did get out of there pretty quickly and i think we we managed to without really planning ahead find a good balance of brendan uh has has known these people since before they were a band and he's going to talk about their favorite song and we managed to like get into some details but not go so far that I mean, we we could still be talking about them right now if is, the gloves were off. That, that that is true. There's there's absolutely no two ways about that. Um, and yeah, those guys are my great friends, and um, it was really really nice to have Dan on the podcast on the Patreon. And um, I think if you guys are fans of the Alkaline Trio or of this podcast, and you know, it's very, very inexpensive. It's um, $7. You can go over there and you can hear um, this conversation with Dan. And it's fun. We talk about everything from, like, Mike Park and what kind of reality shows Mike Park would be willing to be on, um, some of which are amazing, to, like, old stories about when we were teenagers just, like, cruising around, getting stoned. <laughs> Dan's assertion that neither of us should have been allowed to drive cars back then which probably true um there's a time that uh, the brakes went out in dan's car and he had to like mission impossible it into a church parking lot that was amazing um there's a lot of good stuff i mean you can't really i can't really say enough good things about dan in general and particularly our treatment of his personality uh, vis-a-vis the lens of our unique journalistic sensibility. So there you go. Um, it's really, uh, yeah, it's really something. Check it out if you if you feel like supporting us or you hate us but you like Dan so much that you end up having to give us $7 anyway, you know, you can do that too. <laughs> Listen to this podcaster plug. Oh, baby. All right, so let's get back into the saga 
of Slapstick. Last week, we left off uh, with the story of y'all meeting Mike Park, and he said, I want to sign your band. And you said, hey, man, I didn't get into this to make money. Oh, no, you, that's a different story. Uh, oh. <laughs> oh, 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 Mike Park. Right. Okay. Yeah, no. Save um, that one. Yeah, the the um, that moment when Mike, um, we had just played a show, just for a little recap, we just played a show with Skank and Pickle at Metro, which in and of itself was a huge deal. I mean, we were young, young kids, and to play Metro at all was great to play with a like national act like Skank and Pickle that was cool. And like they had horns and they, I mean, there's a lot going on in Skank and Pickle and like just in terms of diversity um, and, uh, you know, political messaging and all that kind of stuff. I mean, they had all different, like all different brands of human beings in that band, you know, like working in harmony to create a message about harmony and unity. Like it's really hard to overstate how like, just the act of them being a band with like this, you know, Asian frontman and like giant lesbian guitar player and like, you know, just everybody in the band like working together. It was a political statement just by existing at that time, you know, mm-hmm. and a lot of a lot of that ska stuff was. And um, which I think kind of gets lost in the fact that there was such a glut of ska bands that would like follow after like after the slapstick sort of um initial wave or whatever um of the third wave <laughs> I, <guess. laughs> I don't know what you want to call it but there's so much goofiness the sky is like a very political um movement it's sort of got lost in that mix a little bit and i think that now it's you know there's like the fucking website that, and it's um it was like a Tumblr. I don't know if it still exists, but it was a ska band or improv troupe. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and it's it's like, yep, that's that's good. You know, yeah. <laughs> that, that is right on in terms of like, yeah, there's always one guy with like dreadlocks and then like uh, like librarian looking woman and mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, just like uh, you know the wacky chubby guy. Yeah. Um, I think that the naysayers of ska will look at it and and point to it as a um you know a a moment of uh white people co-opting black music and turning it into a white thing and when you look at the history of ska it's actually it's a very very diverse enclave and it was you know kind of brought together for that for those purposes of of just mixing up different types of people Right. And I mean, like, even if you look at like the, you know, the origins of like, sort of like, and I don't want to get too into this because I don't know enough about it. And there are people that are like straight historians on this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But like, it's like the original, like, purpose of skinhead was when the dudes that worked in the factories who had dreadlocks, the black guys had to shave their heads because like they didn't want the dreads to get caught in the machinery right then like mm-hmm. their their like brothers white brothers in solidarity would shave their heads as well you know and those were like the people that were you know making ska a thing you know and it was like a it, it was a, it was a movement of solidarity and i mean like obviously um 
again, I'm no like real historian on this shit, but I mean, I do know that skinheads have gone on to be a wildly <laughs> divisive group of people, no matter what kind of skinhead you're talking about. But uh, like, yes. uh, at, at the very least, at the very least, they they've gone to hold some pretty hardline political views. But what we forget, I think, is that that is a hardline political view for the time mm-hmm. to be like, you know what, we are we're working class people together, and like. As goes my brother, there go I. We're going to, like, wear the same clothes. We're going to play the same music. We're going to, you know, cut our hair the same. That's that's a pretty cool thing. And, you know, for a, the ska that came, like, Skank and Pickle ska, which, I mean, the band is called Skank and Pickle. There is a level of goofiness to that band, mm-hmm. undeniably. But they were an anti-racist, um, outspokenly pro-unity, you know, pro-gay, pro, um, like, any sort of identity you could possibly even imagine championing championing in the 90s, they were doing. And they were, in that way, a very radical organization. And, I mean, maybe it's the kind of thing where, like, you know, like Charlie Chaplin was, like, an outspoken political um figure anti-nazi dissident um anarchist anarchist and Mm -hmm. and, yeah i mean he's he's a fucking radical anarchist but he wrapped it in the sort of the bacon of he wrapped that pill in the bacon of being a slapstick comedian whoa waka waka i didn't uh i didn't really expect that to be such a tight little tie-in but um but yeah, Are you so, fucking with me? What? You did expect that to be no, a tight really, tie-in. Oh. No, no, no. I, I didn't. Right, right. But I, 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 think, I think it could be argue, argued. I mean, I know Mike Park very well, and he's very goofy. Mm-hmm. So, But I think it could be argued that the success of Skank and Pickle with their lineup, their message, their existence just as being a radical statement just by purely existing mm-hmm. was was something that was easier to sell, uh, for lack of a better term, because they were such a fun, goofy band. But anyway, the main point of this is just that's just a little background on like why it was so exciting to play with Skank and Pickle. And when Mike Park, you know, told us outside Wrigleyville Dogs that he wanted to sign Slapstick. I mean, that's probably the biggest moment in my life. You know, I mean, I think it was probably the biggest moment in Dan's life. I mean, you know, a lot of us have gone on and don't do music anymore, but what a ride it was for for all of us, you know, at that point. Mm-hmm. And it, so it was at least big. But I mean, for me and for Dan, that was like the moment where everything changed. You know, nothing would ever be the same again. So. Pretty wild. Um, and Dill was at that point was really only putting out Skank and Pickle records. Dill was putting out Skank and Pickle records. And he had been talking to a couple of other bands. We had we had gone up to Detroit and played with the Suicide Machines, mm-hmm. who I mean, I think we all know who the Suicide Machines are. Young Derek Grant, who'd gone to be in the Alkaline Trio, um, mm. was the drummer. Um, and they were a ska punk band like us, which made them very unique and very like nobody had heard anything like this 
before kind of same thing that was going on with slapstick. However, they were a four piece band. So we had, we had horns and they had like a little bit more of a hardcore thing going on as well. Yeah. And, and, and we were just more of like a, for lack of a better term, like East Bay punk kind of version of Scott punk. Right. And um, I mean, by way of the Midwest. And so we knew the suicide machines. They weren't really, necessarily completely on the radar at that point but mike had said he wanted to put our record out there was another band in florida that he wanted us to hear the demo of because he thought we'd really like them they were called less than jake and Mm -hmm. he was going to put out this comp called misfits of ska and then he wanted to put out the less than jake record and the slapstick record he thought were going to be his first two like proper releases or whatever so then matt listened to the lesson jake record he was like man remember that with a demo tape and he was like remember when mike was talking about that lesson jake band they're like a, a cool band they're like us they're like a punk band but they have horns but like it's like the kind of stuff that i'd like buy a record and pay money to go see yeah. but i was like oh cool and so you know that's sort of how that's sort of where it began really was like the Misfits of Scott Comp. ME330 was in there like pretty early on, but they played a much more Skank and Pickle esque like version of Scott, like a lot more musical, mm-hmm. um, a lot less like punk punk, you know, like they were more punk like mm-hmm. the way like Devo was punk in terms sure. of like yeah. it being it being an idea and a movement and stuff like that and like not being afraid to do whatever you want to do. Mm-hmm. Um I hope I hope that they would think that's a fair assessment. I, and I mean, the actual sonic similarities aren't totally not there. Um, but right. But there's a lot of, there's a lot of different bands, especially like in the early on bands that get, you know, lumped in bands like Blondie, um, talking heads. Like these aren't, these aren't punk bands in the way that they sound, but they're definitely punk bands in the way that they carry themselves at the beginning and the ethos and, I think that the diversity of like those sounds are all part of something that, you know, moves in throughout punk. So I think that that, that would be a good assessment. MU330 as a as a Devo type band. Yeah, and and so th- that was the beginning. It was Dill Records, Less Than Jake, Suicide Machines, Slapstick, Misfits of Ska Comp and and I mean, I mean, 330, right? I didn't say that. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, and from, from from our perspective, that was where it started. When the Misfits of Scott comp came out, there was all these bands on there doing something that's in some way or another involved like this sort of like really proto blend of like ska and something else, right? Um, uh-huh. And I don't remember that comp very well, but I do remember and... Keep in mind, I've said many times that by this point I was becoming a real asshole. I do remember being like, <laughs> yeah, the only good shit on here is us and uh, Suicide Machines and Less than Jake and Emmy 330. <laughs> you know, like, uh, totally. And, 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 those, and, you know, by this point, we didn't really know Less than Jake yet, but Suicide Machines were our buddies. Mm-hmm. And Emmy 330, I think we would become friends with almost immediately upon meeting Mike Park. Um, For sure. So I'm looking at the list right now and you've got um, Blue Meanies, 
Yeah. Um, Art. Uh, Glow Skulls, Real Big Fish, <laughs> Sublime, um, mm-hmm. which is, it's wild to consider that that's, uh, that's where Sublime was in mm-hmm. 1995. Yeah. Um, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about um, Chicago at this time. Last week we talked about a lot of the bands connected to the slapstick family tree, but I was reminded again of how diverse Chicago was, um, you know, musically and, um, you know, people of uh, different backgrounds, but especially the Fireside Bowl, Slapstick also played with bands like No Empathy and Charles Bronson. And, you know, a couple days after you see Slapstick at the fucking Fireside, you could see Cabin Jazz and Los Crudos on the same bill. So... I, I'm sure that there are circles within that, but, you know, is is Mark McCoy saying to Martine from Crudos, like, oh, did you hear that Slapstick signed to Dill? No, no, I don't <laughs> think so. Um, uh, you know, it's a funny, funny story. And um, we played, Slapstick played with Captain Jazz at um, Third Floor, right? Mm-hmm. And... And they came out and they were just like, hey, we need to use your gear, you know? And we were like, yeah, you guys are like a real band. You're like people out of high school (laughs) that like have your own thing going on. You've like toured, Mm -hmm. you know, we're just kids, right? Um, So we played, no, they played right before us, actually. And when they played, the guitar player fucking kicked over Matt Stamp's half stack while they were playing, oh. which is not good for the equipment at all. I mean, like, uh, yeah. like a half stack is like the if you think about like a classic like rock and roll guitar amp, like Slash would play, like um, it's four four twelve inch speaker, well four ten inch speakers, uh, and then like a an amplifier resting on the top of it. So to kick it over is to very much damage, uh, potentially damage that amplifier. If, Mm -hmm. if not the speaker cabinet, but you know, definitely the amplifier because you've got tubes in there probably and Mm -hmm. all sorts Mm -hmm. of things that, uh, you don't want (sighs) to jostle around too hard, let alone let fall. Yeah. We were just watching them being like, wow, this is like a real band playing, you know? And like, I didn't really know them and I don't know that, at the time, I thought they were really for me or whatever, but I was just like, I was for the ride. I was ready to be taken in. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And then um, it kicked over Matt's amp, and I was like, oh, I'm going to fight these guys. Like, there's no, oh. like, as as, I, as we talked about last week, it was like, we were such a little gang. Uh-huh. You know, it was like, it was like oh, you me- <laughs> if you're messing with my friend's stuff, like, I'm, like, I will go through hell and high water to, and you know, I never fight anyone. I've never fought anyone, but, um, it just really like put a bad taste in my mouth. And, uh, we had to still play after that. And luckily mm-hmm. the stuff, the stuff worked, you know, but it was just such a like rude, shitty thing to do. I think it probably informed, um, our understanding of like how to treat other people's stuff really well early on, yeah. you know? And also it, I mean, if there was any potential that I was ever going to like Captain Jazz at all or say anything nice about them, uh, no. 
um, <laughs> not <laughs> like it's so funny because I've like borrowed people's equipment before and like I won't I like ask before I even mess with the tone settings. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. You can't just turn another dude's knobs. Like what? What if they don't know what it is, you know? And it's like before you have like a cell phone on you, you can't just take pictures of it. It's like, oh, you didn't have a cell phone back then? No, no, I didn't have a cell phone. <laughs> this was way back, man. Uh, but, um, but like, but yeah, you know, to, um, it would always be like, hey, do you mind if I turn this? Do you want me to write this down where your settings are? I'll put them back before uh-huh. you play. And then this guy's just kicking over the whole fucking amp. It's crazy. Yeah. You know, and I was talking to CJ from the fighters, which is, um, another like fireside bull band. I think I mentioned before that the singer is the guy who brought Dennis Rodman to North Korea. Uh, <laughs> that's right. That's right. Cause uh, the fighters and, and wine press have the rambling boys of pleasure split. Yes, exactly. And I saw CJ, um, at a bar before, like the whole, pandemic situation and we were talking about something he said oh he was like did you go see captain jazz and i was like fuck no i didn't go see captain jazz you know and uh and and he was kind of like already smiling and he was like how come and i was like because <laughs> they kicked over matt's aunt man he's like ah i knew you were gonna say that that shit was so funny you know <laughs> like, and i mean it's just like I don't know what it was like. I, I guess like the Schadenfreude of like this like little band of like young kids like prancing in and becoming like this huge band all of a sudden. Mm-hmm. Probably people were like, "Yeah, kick over those motherfuckers' amps." And I mean, I can kind of get that. I understand that too, you know. But for us, it wasn't funny at all. It was fucking, fucking lame. And uh, yeah, so to this day, fuck those guys. That's how I feel. Ha ha. Pants stinks. There you go. <laughs> Patreon.com slash better sandwich. Uh, we'll probably open up the next episode with Brendan. Who else do you want to talk shit about? Mm-hmm. Um, but you're not talking shit. What you're saying is very legit. And if, um, I mean, first impressions are a real thing and something like that, like if you're not, uh, you're not going out of your way to apologize, I think anybody's got quite the right to be like, yeah, fuck you. And we're also kids. It was like punching down. You know what I yeah, mean? It's not like yeah. it's like if, if if I'm playing with I don't know, social distortion, I kick over Mike Ness's amp, that's a fucking dick move. Mm-hmm. And Mike Ness will be like, fuck these kids, they're never doing anything with us again. But it's not like if we're playing with social distortion and they kick over my amp. <laughs> you right. know, like that's like about a million times lamer, you know? So I don't know. Well, I think you're just not understanding that they were broke college kids and broke college kids have it way harder than anybody else. That is true. That is true. So let's get into look it a little bit. Look it runs tracks seven through 20 on this on the discography track seven is conveniently the last song on side a but <laughs> look it was recorded at sonic iguana with mass giorgini 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 
Yes. I tried. Massimo, Massimo Giorgini. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He, he, um, Mass has got, uh, he's got like a storied history. He recorded Booga Booga Booga, I believe. Um, he had, he's done some, like, I think some Mr. T experience type stuff. He was working with Lookout, um, yeah. a, a lot back in those days. Um, he was in the band, um, Squirt Gun. Squirt Gun. He's in Squirt Gun, and then he went on to be the bass player in Common Rider, um, which was right. just mm-hmm. Jesse Michaels' um, post Op Ivy band after Big Rig or whatever. Um, Before but, uh, Classics of Love, which if you haven't heard that Classics of Love record and you're listening to this podcast, listen to that Classics of Love record. That's great. I actually love the Common Rider stuff too. Um, I think it's terrific. Yeah, I do too. I I, I wanted to give a big shout out to uh, the dudes in Hard Girls who were Jesse's backing mm-hmm. band in Classics of Love. Yeah, yeah. Um, great band, great bunch of bands actually. But um, so mm-hmm. Mass Mass was recording us, um, and we thought that that was a really big deal. And I think that Mass was friendly with Mike. I mean, Mike is friendly with all the Operation Ivy guys. Mike is a ska guy from the Bay. They both there was some band like God. You know, Mike. Mike was laughing his ass off at me because I I said this all wrong. Um, because Mike was like in a band with like the chicks from the Dance Hall Crashers for okay. a second, and like Tim Armstrong was also in a band. Maybe he was in the Dance Hall Crashers for a second. Mm-hmm. I don't know. But I, I I conflated all these stories with Mike and Tim being in the same band and it being the original Dance Hall Crashers, I think, is what I said uh-huh. somewhere. And Mike was like, where the fuck did you get that idea? You know, like, that, that wasn't the case at all. And, um, you know, I, I all I can say is, I, 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 you know, it's been a long time. I don't remember. But, like, my point is, Mike... You know, I mean, like Skank and Pickle was no joke of a band in the in like the Bay Area. So like all those all those people knew each other like in the same way that I knew the guys in the Fighters here. You know, mm-hmm. or I, I you know, or or the way like now it's like I you know Rise Against and Alkaline Trio are like some of the Lawrence Arms best friends. It's like you just you're part of like the whole scene. You know what I mean? For sure. So I guess. Mike must have been the guy that hooked us up with Mass, and we were really excited to go down there and, um, you know, record with somebody that was, like, in the punk scene. I think that was really important. And, like, Sonic Iguana Studios appeared on the label or the the covers of a lot of records that we liked, mm-hmm. you know? So to, like, be in the, like, the sort of, like, the hollowed ground or whatever uh, of of, like, a real studio. And then I believe his... I want to say the assistant was Jeff. They engineered the record and then we slept in this sort of like ISO room in the basement of the studio, which had no windows whatsoever. So it was like pitch black, like you couldn't see your eyes in front of your face, like hand in front of your Uh face. And so like, it was like, do all your pissing now because like, (laughs) there's no ring out of this fucking room. I mean, and again, Tim to, reuse your great joke no one had cell phones so there's no like mm-hmm. not even the flash, early like, adopters 
not even the early adopters. You, so you couldn't use a flashlight to like make through this like fairly small room with six, you know, now fully adult sized people sleeping in it. Mm-hmm. So it was like you get down there and it's and you're there until Mass or Jeff comes and like opens the door in the morning and goes like, hey, it's noon. And we're like, huh? <laughs> you, you just can't tell what time it is. It's like sleeping in a fucking bunker. Um, and so we did that night. The main thing I remember is that Mass was having like troubles with his wife and he was talking to us about him. And I think we were all like, oh, wow. I don't know. You. We're, we're a bunch of teenagers. Like, I don't think we know yeah. um, <laughs> what to tell you here, man. Uh, like, like my longest... My youngest girlfriend is two weeks, you know? (laughs) Yeah. um, But, I mean, I remember that a lot more than I remember, like, the actual part of laying everything down. Mm -hmm. I do think I remember that that was the first time that Danny went in and just redid all the bass. Like, they do, like, the three of them in a live room. Mm -hmm. And then Danny was like, okay, when that's done, I'm coming and I'm redoing all the bass. You know, uh-huh. I think he he'd gotten to that level of sort of professionalism by that point. Um, that was something different from when we'd record with Phil at Son- uh, Solid Sound. Um, I don't re- even remember how long we were down there. I, it felt like like two weeks, but I bet it was like three days. Um, hey, why don't you and I let's open up? Uh, look at freaking nineteen ninety five. Good times gone. Song starts out, starts the record off. It's fast, very tight, uh, just a lot of fun. And I think a really good way to open up on this record, which is just it's the precision of these um, of these performances is just so dialed in. There's so many starts and stops, so many tempo changes throughout this record and good times gone. It's like on a dime. Yeah, well, this one I think is really cool. This is one of my favorite ones. Like aesthetically, mm-hmm. this might be like the coolest one to me in terms of just like uh, it's not my favorite slapstick song, but I think it's like the quintessential slapstick song to me. Mm-hmm. Like this is this like when I because it's dirty. Like what I liked about opening with this song on the record was like. Less of Jake had like like a sort of a polish to him. Even Suicide Machines had sort of a polish to him. Mm-hmm. And even though we had the horns and everything, I mean the way the horns are are in this song, it's like you know, like it's like everybody's just like having a good time, and it just like feels like this chaos that's about to fall apart at any point, you know. And mm-hmm. um, and and like I remember this was one where I had I had the chorus written i wrote all the words to this but i wrote like it was like all your all the good times all the good times mm-hmm. all the good times at the expense of someone else something 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 uh, and then matt stamps came in and was like that's good but it's not this good and you know he he, he was <laughs> like it should be all the good times are gone mm-hmm. and, you know and i was like i was like oh that is better yeah yeah that's great you know and so and then that with with that little bit of mechanization on what I had already like kind of started. Then I was able to write the, the verses because Matt had like honed in on like sort of like a human truth where mine was like a little bit more about like bullying or something like, you know what I mean? And yeah. like, and, uh, and then all of a sudden he, he kind of, he kind of just like 
put in this whole new thing about just like, you know, how, how life sort of passes you by. And we were turning 18, which I mean, seems hilarious to have like some sort of like existential crisis, but for, you know, for kids, it, it, it is, you become like, you become an adult, you know, like all of a sudden you can go to jail, you can go to the war, you can buy porn, uh, you know, mm-hmm. all sorts of great things. Um, those, mean, those are all things that end up with your penis being touched, you know? Um, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is pretty thorough. You can vote too. Also, uh, mm-hmm. another, another instance where you get your genitals touched. Yeah, that's more like you. That's more you get something stuffed up your ass. But um, <laughs> well, I think but, uh, that there's that you know uh, that Breakfast Club line: uh, "When you grow up, your heart dies." Yeah, I think that, that that's um, I think a persistent truth of 18 years old, and the fear of turning 18 years old is totally. And so and so like um, so when so this song when it like became focused by Matt Stamps, then all of a sudden I was able to write the lyrics that I think were very reflective of my feelings at the time. And of everyone's feelings at the time, um, I actually think that these lyrics are some of like the really best that I've done, um, particularly for the time, but just in general, like I think the, the way that like, so when we first did this, we were in the studio. Actually, this is something I remember from recording this is that, or at least rehearsing it. Mm-hmm. I was like, all right, I'm going to sing this first line. And then Dan, I want you to go, I'll live my life my way. And he was like, like what? Like a harmony. I was like, no, I want you to do exactly the same thing. He's like, just, we just double it. And at the time, I mean, I'm not trying to say that we invented the idea of doubling vocals without harmonizing them by mm-hmm. any stretch of the imagination. I mean, obviously, you know, the Beastie Boys were doing that shit in hip hop and like mm-hmm. hardcore bands would have like gang chants and choruses and stuff yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah. But just to come in like one line in the verse and double it again, I'm not saying we invented it by any stretch of the imagination, but we had never heard it before. And it was like, I remember I was like, no, just do it this way. Just try this. And, you know, I think it would just be cool. It'd be kind of like, I believe I said, it'd be kind of like a hardcore thing or a Beastie Boys thing, but not, mm-hmm. But it would be different because it's us, you know, and that ended up becoming very much a cornerstone of our sound. Definitely. And it was and it was this song where that kind of started. I mean, you know, at that thing. And then in the second verse, where it's like, but this time, you know, like that, that kind of thing, mm-hmm. you know, and it's like this was a song where when this was the first song on our record, I knew when anybody heard it like any of the dudes in like the suicide machines less than jake any of those other bands that were like our contemporaries i was like they're gonna be like oh shit this this is this is the real shit right here Mm -hmm. you know i felt like we were just like a little bit dirtier a little bit cooler and like kind of bringing it with like a little more like truth you know because i mean like like not, not that I don't know. I don't necessarily feel this way anymore. I mean, those are those are great bands, and I, I don't think you know, like th- these are these are all like. But at the time, like when we were kids, and I was like, man, we're writing important lyrics, and we're writing like whip ass songs, and like they had a lot of songs about like 
people thinking they were sellouts and somebody not liking them anymore. And like, you know, I got a new girl and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And I was like, Hey, we're going to think about the existential dread of transitioning from high school to adulthood, you know? And like, yeah, and we're going to, and we're going to do it in a way that sounds like it was like dragged through the fucking ditch on the side of the highway, you know, but Mm -hmm. it's still going to be tight. And, you know, so I, I really felt like we had like with this song, we announced like our presence, like on the sort of, like broader scene. Totally. I think that that sort of attitude works really well with something we talked about last week where you're going up and you're playing uh, these shows where people are coming to see you, but you're, you're not quite aware of that yet. You're going up there to steal the show. And Mm -hmm. I think that it's a very good competitive edge to, you know, look at your favorite bands, look at your contemporaries and like and adore them, but also want to be outdoing them constantly. Yeah. I mean, that, that is, um, you know, I think that's who, who among us, right. Is not like that. I mean, it's a very athletic frame of mind, you know, like, you know, like, uh, it's like holding a title belt. Yeah. People want to, I'll play Michael Jordan on the basketball court all the time. Can you do it? Uh, not if you don't try Right. You know, like, and, uh, and, and that, that was it. And like with this one, just particularly being the song that it is, where it is on the record. And I don't think I had anything to do with sequencing this. I don't think I had anything to do with too much on this record besides like writing the words. I mean, I wrote, there's some of the songs I wrote entirely, but, mm-hmm. um, mm, you're almost clear now. <laughs> um, but, uh, so, you know, I'm not trying to take any credit for that, but I felt like, this was just such a great announcement that like we were here for real, you know? Totally. I love the way almost punk enough, like follows it up those horns at the beginning. And then the way it drops out for the verse just so quickly into this nice little ska bit. And then you get those palm muted guitars that pick up before going into the chorus. It's like very nice. Yeah, this song is cool. This was one that was written by the odd combination of Matt, no, no, not Matt, Robbie and Dan Hannaway. Oh, interesting. They got together and played, and they came up with the chorus of this song. Um, but it was the opposite of what it is now. Uh-huh. I mean, and, and like the chorus of this song is a little silly. You know, it's about yeah. having your nipples pierced and all that kind of stuff, but or, or not doing it. <laughs> but the, so it used to be like you've got your nipples pierced, your rancid raver tea, mm-hmm. you know, and then it says you're about as punk as a punk rock girl could be. Yeah, you're punk enough, but that's not good enough for me. And I was like, this is one of the first times that I feel like I like rewrote something, and I was like. I don't think this is very nice. Yeah. You know, like I'm like I'm like I think first of all I don't mind anybody's like choices like that and it's like you uh-huh. know the lord knows I'm like a horned up 18 year old. I'm like I'm not trying to fucking diss any woman's style like mm-hmm. <laughs> on a stage, you know. Mm-hmm. Like you you, you got to be kidding me and I I love like women that look like this, you know, but I mm-hmm. also think that there's something a lot more human about singing a song about somebody who's not punk, but it is good enough for you. Yeah. You know, Mm -hmm. like, 
And, and so like, and so that was like really like the, the big change that was, that, that came about in this song. But this song is also like, I mean, just like when it comes in at the end, like with Matt just doing that, like total, like fat records, like Janet, and then, and then Robbie coming in with like the, like this super tight, like fat record, like doodle bat thing. I have like goosebumps thinking about it. It's like the song itself, the lyrically, like my part in it's kind of goofy mm-hmm. and it's kind of still got like a little bit too much of like a hip hop bounce in the verse yeah. for me to like really be comfortable backing. But, um, but it, it's a good song. I mean, it the is. melody is good and like the, the horn parts are good. This is always what would happen if Dan Hanaway and Robbie would write a song together. It's like, it's going to have the best melodies and it's going to have the best horn parts. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, so, so, uh, so yeah, but that's 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 about what I fucking remember about this one. But a, a big a big fave, as they say. Uh, there's a Hoffman Estates call out in there. Was Record Breakers around back then? Record Breakers yeah. was like a freaking destination. Yeah, um, Dan Hanoi used to work at Record Breakers when Slapstick started. Oh, really? Yeah, and, you know, that was, like, back when um, Cletus, I mean, I think Cletus still probably has some sort of stake in uh-huh. Record Breakers. I don't, I don't really know. But they had a whole thing with, like, where they were selling, like, White Power CDs and shit like that. Uh-huh. And, like, people were, like, were, like, bummed about it. Uh-huh. And I think the idea back then was, like, really more of a legitimate, like, hey, look, we're just carrying punk rock stuff, like... Mm-hmm. You know, if you're dumb enough to want this, we'll take your money you sure. know, kind, kind of thing. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. I, I really don't think it was like a, it was like a, this is our free speech issue. You know, you know what I mean? Like it, it totally. was just, it, it didn't have the same, but Hanaway being Dan Hanaway was like the, the clerk there and like people would buy that shit and he out of, out of the receipt, he'd be like, Enjoy a piece of shit CD, you stupid Nazi fucker. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, there was that. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so Record Breakers was around back then. And I think it was probably around in a much cooler iteration than it could possibly have ever been because Hanway was working there. There are rules. There are rules. <laughs> um, Cheat to Win, this is one of Matt's absolute best guitar lines it's so good this guitar line could be put onto any like category of or subcategory of punk or ska and just totally rip it would totally make sense anywhere yeah this song um he wrote the guitar part at the beginning Uh uh-huh and this song is unique in that Everybody, we sat around and we all wrote the lyrics line by line together. And I just transcribed them down, mm-hmm. you know, um, well, just the chorus, I guess, because, because I mean, obviously like the first few lines are like my voice. I can't imagine. Right. You know, like, um, but yeah, the, Step aside, I'm looking out for me. Whoa. And it was like, mm-hmm. seriously, one, like Rob will go, how about step aside? And then, you know, Matt would be like, I'm looking out for me. And Danny would be like, whoa. 
I mean, it was like it was like that. Awesome. Like, yeah. And the end result is a song that's pretty fucking dumb. Uh, you know, <laughs> I mean, like I know that it's like catchy as shit, mm-hmm. but like, like I don't know what its ethos is, and I don't think it knows what its ethos is. It's like, it's 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 about like. I don't know, like beating up your friends and like, <laughs> like you know, having no moral scruples or whatever. Like, you know, I mean, we're, and again, we we're teenagers, and the song was written by committee. So, like, I remember just trying to put together the verses and being like, right, I've got to make this like really sort of, uh, you you know, the, the first verse I think is sort of about like the sort of malaise of like. You know, and I just mean this in a very generic sense, like, oh, father, I'll never be good enough for you. Sure. You know, here I am trapped in this like fucking little town. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is very suburbia. I'm going to do whatever I can to get out of here. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. And the second verse is more like. We're dicking around, you know. <laughs> like, yeah. like we're, we're we're beating each other up outside the car because <laughs> one of us called shotgun and the other one wants to sit shotgun, you know. Like, so it's it's just really all over the place. When we got back together for the reunion show, I remember we were like we all had to like stop playing because we were laughing so hard at how dumb the words were. I remember Hanway was like, "Ooh, fuck you, smart guy." You know? <laughs> <laughs> You know, I love that it, it. It seems like Hanaway can just whatever whatever he needs to uh, be in opposition to, he manages to just get there immediately. Yeah, I think that's a really astute way to put it. He is not. Um, he's a really really astounding teammate. Uh huh. He is also like a lone wolf by nature, and. His main thing is like to just look at something and immediately have this perspective where you're like, "Oh, I hadn't thought of it that way, but yeah, you're right. You, you you've made that look really stupid." <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> I would love for you to. Um, well, I, I I'll just say that I, having lived around the corner from ground control for three years and doing a podcast for the majority of that time had so many opportunities to just be like, Hey Dan, my name's Tim. I've interviewed Brendan and Chris. Would you, uh, ever be interested? And I, I was never even, I never even came close to broaching the subject because he intimidates me. Oh, he's intimidating. He's, he's a terrifying guy. I mean, like until he breaks into that fucking smile, I'm always like, uh Oh, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like when I see him, I'm like, "Hey, Dan!" And then he's like, "What's up?" And I'm like, Whew. "Thank God!" But yeah, he, he's a he, he's a he's a, he's an intense dude, man. Um, crooked. Uh, <laughs> one of your best vocal performances. I think it probably helped that you had the EP. You recorded this song already for it, so you got to go in and do another take. But you're sounding fucking flawless on this one. Oh, thanks man. Yeah, the this one was really fun and I remember <laughs> I added like the word fuck a lot like uh-huh. to 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 it at the end, you know. Yeah. It, like 
and, and I remember there's like at the very end, like I added the word fuck in and I saw Matt and Robbie like, oh, but that's the time before you're supposed to say fuck. And then I added like two fucks to the <laughs> next time, you know, and they're like, oh man, you know, and it's like, we're still young enough, but that shit was still funny. Yeah. And, like, yeah. Still seemed kind of like subversive or whatever. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, this one, you know, this is just a, I, this is a, what's this track four yeah. on the record? Yeah. I mean, what, what a fucking lineup of tunes. I mean, like for a bunch of like, I mean, I think that, you know, at this point I'm 18, Dan is 17 and Dan Hanaway is 16, it's you know, I mean, it's, yeah. and, and then Matt and Robert 19 and Pete's 20. I mean, it's pretty amazing. No, I think Matt and, Matt and Robbie were still 18 as well, even. Yeah, he was 19. It's crazy, man. Like, listening to this a few times again yesterday, getting ready for this, and having gone through such a great breakdown of this band and all of the component parts that made it, it's still fucking incredible to just to look at the fucking uh, final product. Like, I... And looking at this record and it's just like you got those first four and then there's going to be points later on in this thing where it's just like, how, how? I know we learned how, but how is this so <laughs> fucking good for a bunch of fucking teenagers? Yeah, it's it's, it's really wild. And like, uh, I don't know, you know, I, I again, I spend all all the time like crediting those guys for being such brilliant guys and having me along for the ride. But it, it really is true. And um, I just, you know, as I hear this and I, like, think about this, I don't want to sound like I'm, like, bragging. I'm just more, like, impressed with them and the whole thing than anything else. It's really neat. Colorado, did you write the lyrics to this one? Yes. This is the f- one of the ones where every word here is mine. Mm-hmm. Th- I wrote the chorus. I wrote the whole thing. It reminds me of there's a song uh, late in the um, late on Broken Star where you talk about a friend who like went off. Um, that's not related to this one, is it? No, no. This is uh, this is my friend Carrie, who was a uh, just a really good homie. You know, he's a good friend of like the whole like slapstick team. I mean, he he's still a good friend of all of ours. I, I, we don't see him very often. He lives in California now, uh-huh. but it was sort of like when we all decided to stay home he was gonna go to colorado and go to college and then he ended up going out early Uh you know to like sort of like get his bearings and find a weed dealer you know stuff like that like (laughs) like like the the sort of so colorado's tough finding a weed dealer (laughs) well i mean this was fucking 30 years ago or whatever so no cell phones not even the early adopters that's right that's right and and um well, he was just, like, the first, like, good friend we had that had, like, left. For sure. You know? And, um, and it, it just, like, I don't know, it's just, like, there was, like, a profound sadness about the whole thing. And, like, you know, mm-hmm. I love Carrie. Carrie, if you're listening, I love you, buddy. Um, he's, uh, and, yeah, when he left, it was just, like, holy fuck. Like, this is my f- my best friends and I no longer live in the same town. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. like, 
it just like had there's like a profound bigness to it that I'd, I'd never experienced before. I mean, I mean, look at look at like Good Times Gone, and we're talking about like you know the re- relativity of of getting old. Like <laughs> your friend yeah. going away to college, it's the equivalent of your friend dying. I mean, obviously, yeah, it really is. But... And, and no, I mean, and especially like not to be glib, but like in the days before cell phones, it really is like kind of like your friend dies a little bit because it's yeah. like, when are you, when are you around to talk? You know, like, how can you, how can you stay in touch? Now you can shoot somebody a text message and be like, you know, pay dildo, mm-hmm. you know, like it's, it's more like, Oh, I have to be home. They have to be home. If we get on the phone, we have to make the most of it because you know, that's how this works. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it's not, it just wasn't, it's easy to stay in touch. It wasn't as easy to stay out of touch either, I guess. Sure. Because there, there wasn't, there was more motivation to like maintain those kind of relationships because it wasn't just like, oh, I'll just text you tomorrow mm-hmm. or whatever. Mm-hmm. So there's that. But, um, but yeah, um, that's, that's what this song is about. And, uh, yeah, he went to, he went to Boulder and I mean, the last line is like, will I ever see him again? Yeah. You know? Yeah. No. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so. It is it's it's good at perspective, I think. 74 Fullerton, this is one that I think about when you know you talk about you like to talk to people. So this song was written around the horn line, and then Robbie wrote the end part. Weirdly enough, because there's no chorus in this song. I mean, the chorus is the is the fucking the horn part, yeah. right? And um, and then Robbie wrote the end. He was just like playing. He's like, "Wait, I, I got something. What about and he's drinking again? Uh-huh. His spirits falling like the rain that hits the bus." He's like, "I don't know what else to do with that." And so that was like the first line written for the song, right? Yeah. So I wrote the rest of it. And then Robbie came in with the, he wrote the, no one, no one, no one, no one. And, uh. Is that him singing that part too? Yeah, that's Robbie singing. And, um, yeah, so the song is sort of like a amalgamation of a lot of different conversations I had had with like various Chicago homeless people repurposed on a bus. Cause he said the spirits are falling like the rain that hits the mm-hmm. bus. You know, that was like where that, that was where the setting was birthed mm-hmm. so to speak. And, um, this is another one actually, I believe when we started playing it, a lot of the lyrics I was singing sort of as gibberish, just like so to see like what the um, melody would be, um, ended up being the actual lyrics that ended up in the song. She doesn't love me. Starts off with uh, Matt's voice, correct? Oh, that's no, Robbie. That's Robbie. Oh wait, yeah, I don't yeah. know why I said Matt. Matt doesn't sing. Robbie. Um, yeah, this song's super fun. This song, it was like showed up, and um, I showed up to practice. They had the beginning, they had the the chorus, and they had the outro. All I had to do was write the verses, and the, and then the bridge. Mm-hmm. I'd say my contribution to this song is the bridge, mm-hmm. and, and I, I actually even think if I if I'm correct. I think that Robbie even wrote the "She don't know what she lost when she lost me." <laughs> 
So like I didn't really do jack shit mm-hmm. in this song. I just kind of showed up and filled in like like filled out the forms, lady. You know, <laughs> that was that was really my contribution to this. But yeah, this is like another. I mean, I think of this as maybe the boilerplate slapstick song in that like every part is just a hook and it just all comes together and it's like not your favorite song it's not your least uh-huh. favorite song it's just like but it's a burner it comes on and you're like oh this yeah, song yeah, yeah, yeah. like all uh-huh. these parts are good you know like and, and, and like and then it's over mm-hmm. you know like it's um i think i think of this is really like maybe i know i said good times gone is like to me like the definitive slapstick song but i think that's almost too good to be the definitive slapstick song uh-huh. actually like this is the standard yeah. slapstick song yeah. right here. This is the ultimate. Like if there was a meat, like mean versus median sort mm-hmm. of, mm-hmm. you know. Like and and this one is just right. It's better than you think it is. It's better. It's better than you think it is, but it's still remarkably juvenile. Uh-huh. But. But those things don't interfere with each other. It's a really good way to put it. My way, we got uh, Dan channeling Blake and Jeff Ott, as he told us. Patreon.com slash better sandwich. Yeah, we talk about this song a lot on the Patreon. Uh, Well, a little bit with Dan. And I think I've talked about this before because this this was a song that was like kind of earlier on. This is like a... You know, a lot of these songs up to now were songs we wrote specifically mm-hmm. for Look It. And then this one was one that we'd already, like, demoed once before just to kind of, like, pad it out to make it a full, you know, mm-hmm. LP or whatever. And, um, yeah, the salient points about this one are to just to repeat really quickly. Dan and Robbie wrote this song together. They came in. Their intent was that Dan would do a lot of singing on this. Um, I felt like it was a good flex um it was really fun to play Mm -hmm. all the time like i love doing this one and i wrote it this chorus it was really 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 bad and then matt stamps came up to me was like no 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 Mm -hmm. the chorus will just be this and like he he gave me he gave me all the chances in the world to try it and and he just rewrote it really fast and yeah i can't i can't argue with good on him for giving you uh the chance uh, as we said last week, the geek. I love this song. Speaking of Matt Stamps, fucking shredding. Yeah. So this song, um, he wrote the chorus. Just he wrote. He's not afraid. Not afraid. Not afraid. Not to be. Not mm-hmm. like you and me. That's not so mm-hmm. bad. Not so bad. And then I wrote everything mm-hmm. else in the song. Um, this song, everybody in the band fucking really? hated. <laughs> yeah. Everybody fucking hated this song. Um, and I think there's a few reasons. I think Matt hated it because I wrote that line, I'd rather be a geek than be cool like the geeks uh-huh. that picked on me. And he was like, I don't think that makes any sense. And I was like, no, mm-hmm. I think it makes sense. And and it was just kind of like a, hey, all right, we're going to agree to disagree. That's like your part of this. But I think he wrote a song, and that's, that's my memory of it, at least. And 
I mean, I think he's kind of right. It is kind of a fucking dumb line, but I was trying to get to like a sort of like empowerment call Mm -hmm. a little bit with it, you know? And I mean, I don't know if I really hit the mark, but that was the intentionality behind it. And so like, I sort of doubled down and was like, no, it's Mm -hmm. fine. It's good. You know? And, um, and so I think that's sort of why he didn't like it. And Matt's opinion had a lot to do with how everybody Mm -hmm. felt about everything. Um, that but, mean, let, let me stop you for a second, because um, that has a way of being read uh, a few ways. But Matt's opinion, as it relates to everybody else's, is that like Matt's obviously a fucking smart guy with a good track record. So yes, it, yes, mm-hmm. yes, yes. No, I'm not saying it was like his way or the highway by any stretch of the imagination. What I'm saying is like if Matt's like, ah, I don't know about this, like everyone will be like. Ooh, if Matt doesn't know about mm-hmm. this, I don't know about that. I mean, he made me he made me doubt the like veracity of this mm-hmm. song completely by like even just like mentioning mm-hmm. the line at all. You know? And and but I think what's a bigger reason that this song was disliked by everyone in the band was we did a show at the Fireside Bowl. It was four bands. Slapstick mm-hmm. was the opener. Ten foot pole, face to face, no effects. So, so it, it was a big fucking deal. Yeah, for real. And and we were unbelievably excited about it. And we came out and we opened up with the geek. Mm-hmm. And Brian Peterson, who's the promoter of the Fireside was losing his mind. He had put us on the show because, like, obviously, we were, like, his sort of favorite sons or whatever, mm-hmm. and we'd, we'd done right by him so many times. He put us on the show against the will of the sh- of the tour. They didn't want any openers. Uh-huh. And he, I, I think he was like, dude, I have this opener that will sell, like, as many tickets as you guys would in this place. Yeah. You know? Like, I, I think it, it would be good. So he, like, really went out on a limb for us. And... We we play the fireside bowl with no effects and face to face and ten foot pole. We play the geek halfway through the first song. The bass drum fucking the head splits. Fuck. Um, and we finish out the song, and Rob's like, "The head's broken." You know, the bass drum head's broken, and Brian's like, on the side of the stage, he's like, well, you guys are fucked, get off the stage, get off the stage, bye! <laughs> <laughs> and, so, and so we we fucking, we have to get the shit off the stage, and, uh-huh. like, it was so heartbreaking, I mean, for all of us, mm-hmm. like, we were like, this is our big, our big chance to play in front of, like, Fat Mike, yeah. you know, like, this is so cool, and he, uh, like at the end of the night, I was like, I remember I went up to Robbie, or not at the end of the night after we cleared all our shit into the van and everything. I was like, dude, don't be bummed. Let's go. Dude, we got face to face and no effects to watch here. Mm-hmm. Like, this is going to be awesome. And he just goes, You have fun. I don't feel like watching any bands. I just kind of like walked off into the night and I was like, Oh man, and it was just like such a drag. And you know, that was the same night. That was the first time I ever met Mike. Mm-hmm. I, 
uh, Smelly, Eric Sands, and he, he, he actually talked to me a little bit and told me a story about how they'd played a huge festival somewhere and he like popped the bass drum head as well. And how, you know, it's a real bummer, man. Yeah. It's cool. I mean, they were so nice. Yeah. Um, and I was like, ah, man, I'm like, I wish you could tell Robbie this, but he walked off into the very bad neighborhood that surrounds this place. Yeah, for uh, so real. <laughs> we'll probably never see him again, even. Um, so it's very nice of you to tell me, but and 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 I'm soaking this up because I admire you greatly. But uh, mm-hmm. but like also, I'm I'm working on Robbie's eulogy in my head. Right <laughs> yeah, and then and then Mike was like. Uh, that first song yeah, is pretty cool. Is it indicative of your shit? And I'm like, uh, yes. He's like, do you got anything out there? And we only had the superhero EP at the mm-hmm. time. And, um, so I gave it to him and he's like, this is a cool record. And I was like, oh yeah, yeah, that's great. And he's like, okay, thanks. I'll listen to it. And I guarantee he's never listened to it because, I'm not positive Mike's ever listened to like anything that I <laughs> put out up to this point, <laughs> but uh, I know he didn't really listen to that. But he was very kind and like um, I've never brought up to Mike that that was my band. Oh really? Yeah. Like I don't think I. He probably remembers the show. He does. He just doesn't remember that. I'm sure he remembers that there was like a ska band that like shit the bed after they insisted mm-hmm. on no openers. And the local promoter forced an opener at the Fireside Bowl, which was a very important club. And then we could only play mm-hmm. one song. I, I'm sure he remembers that. And as I think about it, there's no way I probably have never told him about it. But I don't remember us ever having a conversation about it, at least. Yeah. But anyway, yeah, nobody likes the geek. Uh, I, I think that's actually the sort of the, the general theme <laughs> of the song. <laughs> yeah, it works. It works. Nobody likes the geek within the song. But I, I do like, I feel like it's a point that you've made a few different times. Um, the the way the proverbial geek becomes cool and then becomes just as big of a bully as the bullies were to him. Mm-hmm. Maybe even worse. Yeah, I mean, this song is weird. The lyrics are really lazy in it when I think about it. I feel like somebody fed me the name Tommy to write this about like sure i could be totally wrong like matt showed me the melody and the words for the chorus and i feel like somebody was like yeah this is like about my friend tommy Uh so so i wrote it that way because it's it's not like me to name somebody that i don't know you know Mm -hmm. you know and uh i don't know no tommy I mean, I know people named Tommy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, right. But, you know. Wouldn't be first on your list if that was your thing. No. Either. Exactly. Exactly. So, so I don't know about that, but uh, yeah, I mean, this got <laughs> cool horn parts in it and stuff. But oh, I just thought about um, Little Sammy was a punk rocker. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, is Sammy real? I don't think so. Uh, not tonight. Uh, it's. I think this is the one where I wrote down where it's like this record start to finish. Not tonight is the one where it's like, man, there's just fucking not a bad song on here. It gets a little lost, I think, in the, you know, just because the discography is so long. But when Mm -hmm. you start from the starting point of look at itself, like, fuck, 
this record does not have a bad track. Not Tonight is um, not only just a fucking whip-ass song, but also the source of, like, uh, it changed my life, like, forever, this song. Very Mm. fundamentally. So Matt wrote the verse, or the choruses to this, right? Um, Mm -hmm. And... I mean, he had the whole thing. Not tonight. Not tonight. Not tonight. Not tonight. Not yeah. tonight. Like, he had the whole thing written down. I write one verse. I mean, the song is chorus, verse, chorus, verse, mm-hmm. chorus. You know, like, it's it's so simple. And the two verses are the same, right? Mm-hmm. And this was a song we wrote early on. When we finally go on tour, we're in fucking... College Station, Texas. I remember we were playing in like a cafeteria of the university, and um, this dude came up. And this was like when we were first like realizing that like people were listening to slapstick like all over the country and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And and it was very wild to like get out of the van and people knew our songs and like knew who we were and like wanted to like say hi and stuff, you know? And yeah. And this dude was like, man, I just want you to know that's how not tonight. Like really, it's a really important song to me. It really changed my life. And, and I was like, this guy's like 25. He's like a real man. And yeah. he likes like what we do and what I do. And like, you know, I'm an 18 year old kid, you know, and this is mm-hmm. crazy. I was like, thanks, man. Yeah. Sounds about like, you know, kind of getting too drunk and like, you know, not being able to drive your car home. And, you know, you try to call your dad and you can't even like dial the phone or whatever. Yeah, that's funny. He goes, that's what that song's about? I thought it was about like kicking off the dust of your shitty town that you lived in and like, you know, telling your family you weren't coming back anymore because you had to like get out and make something for yourself. And mm-hmm. I was like, "Oh God, I've, I've ruined the song. I've ruined this guy. This totally sucks." You know, <laughs> like I, this, I was like, "Oh no!" And it couldn't have been. It wasn't even like it was about something good that was different. <laughs> you know, it wasn't like right. it wasn't like. No, it's about love, you know? It's yeah, a, yeah, yeah. It's, it's about, like, how, like, if you follow your heart, you know, it, sometimes you just can't come home because it's like, baby, you know what? I love you, but I will not be coming home tonight, uh, mm-hmm. you know? And then there's, like, an emotional resonance there or whatever. It's like, nope, this is about being too drunk to finish a payphone call, and I just told you that, and, <laughs> like, you kicked off the dust of your one-horse town because of, like, the fucking... Words of this song that you thought were important, but they're not at all. And uh, and so that was the moment, very literally, Tim, that was the moment where I was like, if I'm going to do this and people are going to be listening to it and I'm going to have to talk to people, two, uh-huh. two things. Number one, I can never half-ass the lyrics ever again. And number wow. two... I can never really tell anybody what things are about because what they think they're about is so much more important than what I think they're about. Even me? Even you. Well, you know, that's you're the exception. That's right. That's right. Two greatest words in the English language. Exception. 
closing in on the end here, we got Ed. Um, this is another song uh, when you talk about slapstick kind of taking things seriously and not making everything about, you know, goofy stuff that's usually associated with ska, especially the third wave of it. Um, you know, there's a song about homelessness. I think this is the first song I ever brought in completely mm-hmm. all myself. So this is like, I wrote all the words, all the music to this. Um, and uh, I felt like this was the direction that we should be kind of heading mm-hmm. in a little bit. You know, we talked the other, maybe even the last episode, about how like everybody's got to like play their part in the assembly line, but you forget that there's an aesthetic component right. to that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? And like, so this was like me really paying attention to the aesthetic component. And I wrote this whole song. Is it the best song on this record? No. Is it the most important song on this record? No. Uh, But it is a good song that I think stands up on the record um, compared to compared to some like truly Mm -hmm. great songs. And uh, and this was sort of like my first foray into like writing a complete song like this for that I knew would be heard. Right, and I was really proud mm-hmm. of this one and the way it turned out. I, the fucking weird thing is, I couldn't do like the end. I wanted it to do this like it now goes whoa, and I think I wanted it to do that, and I couldn't like figure out the chords to make it have like the like heartbreaking thing sure. that I wanted it to have, and it, it was just like a little bit annoying, but. Yeah, I like this one. It has no horns. This one to cheat to win have no and not mm-hmm. tonight have no horns on this record. And um, this would also become sort of a standard bearer that I would hold myself against when I was like writing Broadway songs and they weren't turning out that great. And I'd be like, "But you used to be able to write cool songs." Yeah, is that a you positive know? standard bearer? It sounds a little uh, self depreciating. Well, no, it was just like beginner's uh-huh. luck or whatever, you know taken taken apart i I suppose is the way is the way i put it um the punks i love these songs about drinking from 17 year olds yeah this um so like ed from ed Mm -hmm. was a real guy um eric he you you might know him as eric backowitz from uh the liner notes he wrote that poem uh Yeah, and Eric was um, a great friend of mine, and every Sunday, we had a thing called the Sunday Fun Club, and he'd come pick me up at my house, I lived with my girlfriend, and he'd like have a six-pack, or a 12-pack, and we'd drive around in his Ford Probe, and just get drunk as hell, driving around the city, and yeah. that's what the song is about. Uh, like, it, yeah. you know, and I mean, like, unlike Not Tonight, which really sort of shamed me and made me like rethink everything and made me also rethink like my treatment of Matt stamps, like thoughtful lyrics and turning them into something Mm -hmm. very thoughtless. This song I wrote Mm -hmm. all the words to. um, And I think it's fun. And I think it's like totally significant to be, 
a 17 year old kid and write a song about like how like we're driving around in your Ford probe getting fucking wasted and like, woohoo! you know, like I, I think there's, I think, I think there's a place for it. Sure. Yeah. It's not, uh, not the message that we want to send out to any 17 year olds out there, but <laughs> no, fuck that. get drunk. Ford probe. I mean, <laughs> yeah. Don't buy a probe. I mean, I guess that's if, if, if that's what you were talking about. Tim. <laughs> Nate B, I this song, like probably the best song for horns on this record. So this song w- was so uniquely cons—I uh, want to say conspired because I don't know like another word that fits better. Um. Robbie was like, what about a like right I Dan and we were we were I think it was inspired by the opening horn line and then we started writing it and then all of a sudden Dan Andreano stops everybody and goes I've got a I've got a, I've got a line for the, the chorus. Was there was something I could do to let you know exactly how sorry I am, and mm. it, it would have never done those things if I had known you'd never speak to me again. And I was there in real time, watching us like base a song on mm-hmm. the horn line, and then watching Dan come up with this like amazing melody and these like very like sort of resonant mm. lyrics. And this was the song. This was the song that we did on the Misfits yeah. Scott comp. I, I think this was the first song that, like, for us, like, I think Good Times Gone is a cooler song, right? Um, I think there's, like, those songs on the, the eight songs are, like, pretty much all better than this song. But this was the first time we did a song where I think we were all like, oh, this shit is a jam. Like, we have stumbled into a hit here, you know, like it, it, and it was like, like we'd play it and we'd like all have goosebumps. Like <laughs> we'd be done, you know, like it was just such a, like, and it's so funny because the world has turned so much. And I have personally heard the song Nate B so much that it no longer has like very much resonance to me. If I think about it, just, in very pragmatic Mm -hmm. terms. Right. But when I think about it in terms of like, when we wrote it, I remember that like, I feel like we got done playing that song for the first time and like hugged and high fived. Like it was such a big deal. And the song was re-recorded also for the, for the LP. And that thing at the end, Danny Andreano came in and was like, I want to sing, you know, like the backing vocals, because he didn't mm-hmm. sing on the demo version. And then he came in, and at the very end, we goes, again! And we were all like, holy shit. It was like he just like put right. the icing on the cake right there. And we were like, because that was like our shit, right? It was like that 15, the Gilman mm-hmm. Street kind of thing. And for us to have this song that sounded like it was like, could have been like a song you like, 
walk down the fucking cotillion aisle yeah. to at the top, and then it like ends with this like, <laughs> like it was. I I think it really was the full, you know, breadth of what we were what we were going for. It, it ran the full gamut of of like what we thought we mm-hmm. wanted to be in a band. Mm-hmm. You know, like it's like we got the coolest horn section. We'd like to show that off. We've got like the most like thoughtful lyrics. We'd like to show that off. We also don't play and we fuck with these like crust core bands styles. We'd like to show yeah. that off as well. You know, like and whether or not this song actually accomplished any of that to our like, you know, teenage minds, it was like and this song this song was done when we were mm-hmm. seventeen. You know, like when I was maybe 16, maybe I was either 16 or 17. This is one where like, and I'm just going to like turn the volume up a little bit on like my, my feelings about slapstick. Um, but if, if there's, if you're of the like, you know, slapstick is important because of all these people, like the band themselves is kind of second to that. Like, this song is one of the ones that you just put on the argument against and like, no, like it's not just these players who did other things. Like this is fucking transcendental music. This is really, it it does like reach into a higher echelon where it's, it's more than anything else. It's just, it's just a perfect track. Oh, well, thanks man. Yeah. I think, I think you're right. I mean, I think that there's no doubt that this is like the. It's so funny when like, I mean, of course, this isn't going to be anybody in the band's mm-hmm. favorite song, right? Like, it's the best one. I mean, it's it's yeah. just like it's the best one. Like, it, it, like when when we wrote it, we knew it. The way it starts, um, the way it like exploded our career, like nothing else ever could have, like. You know, like, if we put anything else on Misfits of Ska, like, what we've talked about other songs that are, like, maybe better than the song on here, like, what, um, Good Time's Gone, that would have done not 10% of yeah, the, totally. the work that this song did. Um, what what else What else did we talk about? Uh, you know, Metalhead in the Parking Lot. I mean, that's, that's almost a different band at that point. It's mm-hmm. so much more sophisticated mm-hmm. and refined, you know, that, like... And also, I just don't think it's got as much of a. It's it's not as clean, in terms of your ability yeah. to just enjoy yeah. it. You know, like like you, you don't have to get past anything to enjoy Nate. Not B. at all. So weird. I named this after this guy who I went to high school with, who I really mm-hmm. looked up to, um, who was so kind to me. He broke up with his girlfriend, and he was, like, really heartbroken about it. And I think I made out with her. I I don't think it mm-hmm. got any more serious than that, you know? And he found out about it, and he was like, you fucked my girlfriend. And I was like... Yeah. I, 
I'm too young to even know that that's like really an option, to be honest. Like, I think we just yeah. kind of made out a little bit. And he's like, and he said to me, he goes, you know, you can't try to please everybody all the time. You'll never, you'll never be everybody's friend. And that's wow. like the line in the song, you know, so he said, don't try to please everybody all the time. You can never be everyone's friend. Right. And like, and it fucked up my whole relationship with him. And he was cool. He's like, he wrote graffiti, uh, and I like pretended yeah. I wrote graffiti, but I really liked the like mm-hmm. the cool graffiti guys and stuff like that to to quote the Beastie Boys, uh, and um, and I also like didn't quite understand. I mean, I guess it's maybe a little disingenuous to say because I can't imagine that I was really that naive. But I thought they were broken up, and like you know, I was just like kissing this girl, and Nate was so cool. I figured that like he didn't care about shit. Yeah, uh, sure. You know, I am sure, and I'd, I'd, I'd like to take myself to task for this one, but that's not entirely uh, not bullshit, you know? But, but like... Sure, sure. But, uh, yeah, when Dan wrote those lyrics, I think he wrote them, from what I remember, he said he wrote them about his dad. Um, which is weird because him and his dad have a very close relationship or they did for a long time. Um, uh-huh. Dan wrote the lyrics to the chorus, but then I had to like make it about something that related to me. Right. So, um, sure. so like when, when it's like, wish, you know, I would have never done those things if I'd have known you'd never speak to me again. It's like, yeah, I shouldn't have walked, uh, Kirsten home and made out with her a little bit like that. I guess that was bad, you know. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, it's it's such a like minor thing considering like the the weight of the song. But but I mean, I guess when you're in high school and that was literally a high school thing. Mm-hmm. I was mm-hmm. I was a freshman in high school actually. That that shit that shit's important, you know, and that that is a big deal, and that's the way you do navigate like your relationships in the future and like realize like oh, i can't just do this you know sure yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. sorry about that <laughs> uh broken down we established last week your favorite slapstick song i love that nate b nate b is like maybe the best song on the record but then you end it with a song that is better just as close to me. <laughs> yeah, totally <laughs> This song is this is the best slapstick song. Um, it's not my favorite slapstick song only. It is my favorite mm-hmm. slapstick song, but it is the best slapstick song. This is to me everything I wanted the band ever to be. Like when Dan said "Metalhead in the Parking Lot," there's a lot in there that's like marbled into I think his intentionality. And what I'm talking about is where he talked about that at a. Uh, Better Sandwich at Patreon.com. Is that correct? Is that how you say it? That's a, exactly how you say it. Yeah. Um, where we talked. If you want to type it, it's Patreon.com slash Better Sandwich, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, good. good. Um, but but Dan Daniel Andreano, the bass player of both the Alkaline Trio and Slapstick, said that his favorite song was Metalhead in the Parking Lot. And... He's into like the instrumentation. He's into the the switching up of things. He's into the the bombast of that song and like the risks that everyone takes in it. Not the least mm-hmm. of which are like risks I kind of take as a vocalist. I mean, I'm sure that's 
what like melted into his his conception of what makes the song good was that even I, the bungling vocalist, took some risks in in that song. But <laughs> uh, "Broken Down" is the best slapstick song. "Broken Down," I think, is like yeah, no, I'm I'm willing to say this. "Broken Down." is like an underrated classic punk song like for the ages like i think it's like mm-hmm. I, I think it, it, i i think it's yes i know i'm on it and that's like you don't get to put yourself you don't get to canonize yourself and but it's i feel like slapstick's been canonized like uh against your will so much <laughs> that you're allowed to rewrite it a little bit mhm the song is just like it's like a perfect pop punk song. When the Lawrence Arms did the Taco Bell tour, which mm-hmm. was for those of you who either don't know or didn't hear the other episode of the podcast where we talked about that, we call it the Taco Bell tour because we did Sundowner, which is Chris's solo sort of project, and then The Falcon, which is my sort of side project with Dan from Slapstick. And we all played in all of it. Well, I didn't play in Sundowner, but we all played in all of it. And it was mm-hmm. like the Taco Bell um, formula where you take the same like shitty few ingredients and you, you know, put them in different things and call it something different. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's why we called it the Taco Bell Tour. And um, we did, we covered 15 Minutes by the Broadways, the Lawrence Arms did, and we covered Broken Down by slapstick because to me it was important i suppose i didn't know when we would ever tour again or if we'd ever tour again that was sort of why that tour was so bombastic and i just wanted to get out there that like some of these other projects that we've been a part of or i've been a part of were like really significant and these are some of the things that i really really loved about them and Broken Down was was what came out immediately, which is funny because without horns, you'd think Broken Down wouldn't <laughs> work very well. But it turns out it's a good enough song that it does. Um, this was one. Uh, Matt wrote the, the chorus. I wrote the, uh, the verse. And it was like the first time I'd ever written a melody. It was great, I think. For a verse, mm-hmm. you know, just like like that, like that last part really like set it apart for me from like doing what was like rudimentarily like melodic hip hop, like what like Nelly would eventually come along and do, was sort sure. of what yeah. I, what I was doing before, you know, mm-hmm. where I'd like write a bunch of words and I'd be like vaguely like singing notes. They were in the key. This was the first time I took a melody and like pitched everything to the melody, you know, like, yeah. And, yeah. and, um, and so with Matt writing this great chorus and me writing like what a verse that I was very proud of. And then all of a sudden Carl Henkelman, had come in with the uh-huh. and you know like created this like sort of like 
Oh, what, so it's like a jazz band in the kitchen, like warming up, like while this band is playing, kind of vibe, you know? Right, right. And, and then like Pete was just like, and then once it became just Dan and Pete, and they could start like really fucking with that, and like Dan, Dan Hanaway would. Like, like, really just, like, almost, like, purposefully cripple it a little bit to make uh-huh. it even more, like, like, it was just, like, down in the fucking nothing. And then, um, and then we always loved that song, um, I'm Not the Only One, on the first Rancid 7-inch. First song on the first Rancid 7-inch. Oh, okay, yeah. Right? And, uh-huh. and then, like, somewhere, like... Halfway through that, they have this breakdown. It's like, doom, 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 and it's like, and it's kind of the same thing, but it's like a much more minimalist thing. Mm-hmm. And then Tim's like, I'm not the only one, motherfucker. And like, and like, me and Danny just always thought that that was like the fucking coolest that he would. Like call in like the huge chorus with like almost like a dead whisper, mm-hmm. you know. Like it, it was just like, yeah, man. Damn, dude, you counted that in by counting it out, you know. Like I, I don't know if that makes sense. It does. Okay, goosebumps. <laughs> but like, but like it was just like that's what a genius does, you know. And uh-huh. you know what I do? I steal from you, and <laughs> so yeah. And so, like, whenever we play that song live, it's like I'd look at Dan, I'd be like, I'm not the only one. Motherfucker. And, and, he, and he would do it with me. And then eventually we started screaming it, you know. Because, uh-huh. I mean, the crowds were getting the crowds were getting large and unlike rancid we had to keep playing that song you know they, yeah. they, didn't, they didn't have to keep playing um <laughs> i'm not the only one because they, they had more songs so they, <laughs> they, they would have started screaming motherfuckers i assume but yeah. but that is to me the fondest memory of all of slapstick period is that breakdown and broken down mm. and me and Danny looking at each other and looking over at Pete and Dan, like doing this just very esoteric horn part that like has become like routine for us because like we have the fortune of having such incredibly innovative horn players mm-hmm. and, and me and Dan getting to do this fucking rancid line that we just straight steal it was it's my favorite it's my favorite part of the entire memory of the band you know fucking awesome that's so cool just like i i think to to think about this band as something that just blows up in ways that you couldn't have imagined and you get like thrust into this uh you know onto these big stages and you're straight up like doing what every kid like 
pictures when they're in their room air guitaring. Yeah. Like, as cheesy as that sounds, it's like this is like just a fantasy that you get to take part in. Well, it, it, and it really is. And it's like, you know, I think that there's like two parts to that. And, and I, I don't want either one to be lost because on one hand, you're right. It's like, holy fuck, we get to live this dream and we get to do all this stuff we've always wanted to do. On the other side, for me, and I'm not speaking for anyone else in Slapstick, because they're all so visionary, and I mean that to the last. But for me, it was like, I don't really have a lot of ideas, so I'm just going to be imitating my heroes, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, and, um, and so, like, like, I could tell you for sure that the part where, you, where we impersonate Rancid, that was my idea, because that's not the idea that people that come up with their own things come up with. <laughs> Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, like that—that that was that was me being like. So another guy did this thing that was really great. Let's just steal exactly <laughs> what he did. If that's cool. So, yeah. Beautiful. All right. So this record comes out on Dill, and how? Not to get like too granular on the. Uh, on the landscape front, or I guess this is a better, this is a better way to go. Um, it comes out on Dill. You went out on tour with Skank and Pickle on a full U.S., correct? Mm, no, it was, um, it was actually a very small tour. It was Chicago to Denver. Uh-huh. And it was Austin seven seconds and Skank and Pickle, and Seven Seconds to all of us had been like, Seven Seconds still is like one of the coolest bands, like the most definitive. You know, it's like when you think about like, you know, I talk a lot about Minor Threat in this podcast uh-huh. um, and how like I think that they're just like incredibly significant and important. And Seven Seconds was like the other side of that. The, the like, we don't have to be angry version of hardcore. Mm-hmm. Y- you know, like we can be frustrated, but we're still positive you know and when we went on that tour it's hard to overstate how much we didn't know what was going on we were with seven seconds who was like this legendary band that we loved and admired and they'd be like hey what's up guys and we were like uh <laughs> us are you talking are you talking to me like i i, I don't I like I, but like we did, didn't know. You know, we didn't know about like punk rock tours and like every everybody seemed huge, and everything seemed so important. You know, like um, like we we were used to seeing, uh, you know, like Bad Religion at the Riviera or whatever. Right. And, and the thing that was surprising was that there was a punk rock community that was so vibrant and big that it made this band untouchable. You know, mm-hmm. where like I came from a place where I was the only person that had ever heard of this band mm-hmm. and to show up and be like, holy fuck, there's two and a half thousand people here that also know this band and like them as much as I do. That's insane. Yeah. You know, and so when we went on this tour, I feel like there was 
a level of like, whoa. Oh, so we're talking to the guys in seven seconds now? That's crazy. And like, it's getting a pickle. You know, Mike had become a friend and we started talking to him and stuff like that. And None of us were really that into ska. So we knew Skank and Pickle as an entity. We liked them from the shows we had played with Skank and Pickle. Mm-hmm. But we didn't come up listening to ska music. We came up listening to hardcore and punk, mm-hmm. you know? So it was kind of a different thing. And I mean, it didn't hurt that every single person in Skank and Pickle was like, almost superhumanly kind and yeah but then again the other band was seven seconds who was like almost superhumanly kind as well uh-huh. so we did this tour and it was yeah i believe it started at the metro and it went to denver and a few things happened on that tour that were interesting the big one was that we were driving to the show at First Avenue in Minneapolis. Uh-huh. It was a sold-out show. And it's a big club. Yeah. Um, Not 7th Street. You sold out First Avenue. Damn. Well, well. Oh, I we guess I assume the sellout. But, yeah, either way, you're playing the bigger one. You're playing the Prince Room. <sighs> no, and it was sold out. Uh-huh. But it didn't have anything to do with us. But you're actually, like, more right than you know because – what happened was on the way there, the drive shaft fell out of our van on the highway, Whoa. which um, means that the thing that goes between your two axles that like twist them both in the same way mm-hmm. fell off our front axle. So if we'd been driving a little faster, <coughs> excuse me, it would have flipped the van like ass over face. You know, wow. and we could have very easily all been dead. And it was a bad van, as you can imagine. Yeah. Like what 17-year-olds are driving around in, um, you know, in the 90s. Uh, Doesn't that make like a terrifying noise, too? It was the worst. Yeah, no, it was like if your dick was made of steel and it was long enough to hit the ground and mm-hmm. you were running as fast as you could and then your steel dick hit the ground in front of you and was just like... <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's... More or less exactly what it was. Um, and and so we pull off and we're like, I don't believe we're going to miss this show. It's so fucked up. We called a mechanic. We were going to get a towed. Mike Park was like, you have to come. Just come. And this was like when maybe, you know, Mike Park has always been very kind. And uh, he's always been just the ethos of what good punk rock is supposed to be about personified Mm -hmm. but this was maybe the the example where i was like oh this isn't just like this isn't how everyone is like this isn't normal he was like seven seconds is already played you just need to get here we just want you to play just get here by any means necessary um and don't bring your gear we have gear you can play on our gear. Just get here. And we showed up at the show eventually. I can't remember if we got the van towed or if we just kind of left it and we're like, hey, tow the van. We showed up at the show. 
It's like fifteen hundred people. Definitely the biggest show we'd ever played at the time. Yeah. Skanker Pickle was finishing, and we were like, "Well, we missed it." Fuck. And Mike Park goes, "Nobody leave. Slapstick is coming on, and they're about to play. Do not leave." And he's like, "There will be. I'm not even going to leave the stage. I'm not going to stop talking until they get on the stage and are ready to start playing. So please stay here." And we got on the stage, and Mike was like, held the crowd there for us, and we got up and like, absolutely. It was a great show for us. Oh, wow. Like, like I mean, they'd been warmed up by Skank and Pickle in seven seconds. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it was like, it was like playing, uh, like, at low altitude in a way. But another way, we were young people that were not um, at all the headlining act. So Yeah, I yeah, the, yeah. I think there was a little bit of uh, column A, a little bit of column B, as Grandpa Simpson says, um, going on here. Where, on one hand, this crowd was ready for a show, and on the other hand, we were ready to put on a show. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And, and still, that might go down as, like, my favorite show I've ever been a part of. That's unreal, because, man. Just even considering the fact that people didn't leave, that's a victory. They saw the mm-hmm. two bands that are above you, and they didn't leave. That, in and of itself, is, like... But it was like such a unbelievable moment of like realization that like oh punk rock can be about something like this where these headliners are like yeah play after us you know mm-hmm. we just we we just want the mute and and I mean like sure Mike Parker just put out a record and I'm sure he was like there's 1600 people here this is so close to Chicago oh my god if they don't play this is a very stupid idea yeah, yeah. but like like it didn't feel like that and I don't I don't think that was probably his first thing in his head I mean he's 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 always been like just a good-hearted person you know and um and so we played that show and and it was great I think Mike was like Oh, you guys had a better show than anybody else. What, what the hell? Mm-hmm. So, tell me about the um, the famed meeting with uh, with Brett. So we play in. Actually, I want to say it might have been at the showcase in Corona, because um, I don't remember playing LA proper with slapstick. Although maybe we did, and I'm just misremembering. We were like up in a balcony after the show. Brett comes up there, and he's like, with his someone that would go on to be his wife eventually, Gina, uh-huh. who was a bo- a booking agent, right? Mm-hmm. And she was, uh, and and there, and she was like, the way I remember it, and I hope I'm not getting any of this wrong. Because obviously, I need Brett to still like me. Uh, was <laughs> was, uh, was like, she was kind of like, I told you they were great, and he was like, Yeah, no, you guys are great, and um, we want to do a record with you, and uh, we'd like to, you know, you guys have a thing. You were here first. Um, nobody can catch up. Uh, you guys are the best at this, mm-hmm. and we're gonna sell a lot of records and make a lot of money. Yeah, right. Yeah. And 
the thing was, we were just a little too young, and I was just probably a little too brash, specifically. And Dan Hanway was younger than me and more brash than me. Mm. He maintains those two positions to this day. Uh, <laughs> and uh, and um, we left the meeting, and I was like, what the fuck was that? That was about money? It's not about rock and roll, yeah. you know? And and Matt Stamps, and I think everybody with like any sort of sense of reason in the band was like, uh, this is like our dream, like all our favorite bands are on this label. Uh, are you out of your fucking mind? Yeah. You know, and I was like, oh, fuck this. I don't want, but I think that it was like one of those things where like, you know, when your wife stops cooking you dinner, it's not because she's just tired of cooking you dinner. It's because of something else. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. like she she doesn't like the fact that, like, you disrespect her friends. Right. Or whatever, whatever the fuck it is, you know? Um, like, and I played it like, no, nah, I'm just too punk for this. When in reality, it had nothing to do with Epitaph. It had nothing to do with... I mean, obviously, it's like my band is on Epitaph now and like clutching to them like uh, a door floating just outside the Titanic's wreckage, you right. know, uh, right. <laughs> like, like, we, and this is 1995 bad religion yeah. is pretty high up. Yeah, yeah, no. And, and I think the thing was. I was feeling that there's always been Matt's band and it was always Robbie as like the sort of comptroller for lack of a better word, Uh you know, but like, and then Danny was like a senior member in the band to me. And he also was like a brilliant songwriter singer in his own right. I think that like, I was just like full of myself and thought that like I was the singer and I should have like more, say and what was up and i like read a song like ed mm-hmm. uh which was just like straight punk song and i was like this is the direction i'd like our band to go yeah. and and well it was wrong you know it was a bad it was a bad idea by me but it was i think i didn't love ska i'd grown to hate ska based on what had like sprouted up since uh-huh you know and and like since we started and like the like all of a sudden it would be like oh we're playing in fucking rolling meadows with skagina it's like <laughs> woof like I don't, I don't like this you know and and like and so as much as it had nothing to do with anything but like my own personal probably insecurities and my own lack of confidence of how to steer the band. It's much easier to say what you're doing is wrong than to say, hey, I'll try to take the wheel. Yeah. It's sort of like you a know? preemptive, like, I never liked this shit anyway. Mm-hmm. No, that's, that's literally almost exactly what I said. And um, so... 
that meeting went poorly. And that was like the beginning of like, sort of like, I think the, the end really. And, and it was like me and Hanaway were on one side. Everybody else was on the other side. Um, well, I think Pete was like, uh-huh. are we really fighting, fighting about things? I don't see why anyone would care about either of these things. Because uh, you know, <laughs> Pete's just that great of a guy. Um, but we got home, and that's when we made the, the eight-song demo that was going to be Epitaph. And, and I feel like that was like sort of like the makeup sex after a big fight. Like, mm-hmm. that shit went incredibly well. And and we were like, oh yeah, you know, we we we've got this fucking thing. Uh-huh. But like me and Dan were writing songs like all by ourselves and pushing them into very specific places, and and then at a certain point, like, feel like the gas just gave out in the engine, and all of a sudden we'd come into practice and. I was like, well, I don't like this song. And it was like, well, we've been working on this song. And I was like, I've never come in here and not like the song you guys have done. Mm. But like, like I, I don't like this, you know? And, and I like this stuff. And I think it was probably very territorial at that point. Like, I, I don't know that my, uh, my vibes were legit or was fair to the songs or whatever, uh-huh. but that felt at the time, and you know, I was like, I was like young and brash, you know, like it's not. I'm not. I'm not sitting here to like justify myself. I, no, I was, not at I, all. I, I did. I yeah, did something yeah. very, very assholeish. I like kind of, but you know, I also know that like at this point, Matt was so sick of me that they were practicing without me with Danny singing, and they're like. Yeah, fine. We don't need them anymore, and they'd all be out there with like secret practices without me. Uh huh. To like Dan too, Hanaway. I think so. Wow. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't, I don't, I don't know for sure, but like, yeah, because I think he was the, like. How else would I know that that happened? Oh, Hanaway sure. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. So of let me course. ask two clarifying questions about mm-hmm. this. So, with the meeting with Brett. Did you say anything directly to him to say? No. Okay. No. Okay. Um, I think uh, it would be a lot cooler if you did, but also it wouldn't be cooler at all. <laughs> you know what I mean? I think that that's um, a uh, kind of a theme to this whole story is that what... Well, I think that Brett... Go ahead. Brett at the time was a very rich man who was in a very, very good punk band and started a very, very good label. And he was younger than I am now. Mm -hmm. And what he was saying was, stick with me and you'll pretty much never have to work again if you like doing this. And the idea that I came close to being like, go fuck yourself, man, uh, is like mortifying to me. It's it's like, it's like the same thought as like, if my baby had like flown out of a carriage and I had just like caught it right before it hit the street. Uh-huh. And yeah. Pull it back yeah, in, yeah, yeah. You know, like, like 
he wasn't saying anything bad. He wasn't doing anything wrong. The whole thing was um, totally above the board and for our benefit. And, uh, you know, I I just wasn't, like, self-actualized enough to to deal with it. I, I don't think... Right. I think... I don't think I wanted to be in, like, Matt Stamp's band. Not, and not that I didn't love and respect Matt or Rob, but, like, I think I didn't have the... Like, my ego had grown too big to understand that they were the important people in the band at the time. Yeah. You know, yeah. I wasn't ready to admit that I was not as good as them, mm-hmm. you know? And, uh, and, and he was pushing that to a head to me. Yeah. You know? And it's like, what's my choice to be like, it, which is so ridiculous because they're obviously so good at this. And they obviously steered the whole thing, this entire way. Mm-hmm. And like, I, and I did almost nothing. And then there I am when they finally get there after putting this whole thing together meticulously, writing the songs, putting together this fucking lightning in a bottle lineup. And then I'm like, yeah, fucking not that bit into this. I mean, it's such an asshole move. It's, it's really, uh... and let me tell you, there's nothing I'm happier about on this earth than that. I'm not still playing ska songs. I wrote when I was 16 right now yeah like like i think i think about that all the fucking time yeah like if that meeting had gone a different way i'd be in a fucking spider-man costume right now (laughs) you know (laughs) singing to a bunch of dutch teens and it would be miserable Mm. and like the self-actualization that i think that i've actually been able to uh, juice out of whatever fruit was left in the fucking juicer from that is the sustenance I needed, you know, and yeah. and wanted, and mm-hmm. and that and that keeps me healthy and glowing. But it was not a cool move. It like it was not nice to any of those people, and. Uh, yes it sucks yes and and to, to clarify my own phrasing it would be cooler if you said it to brett in the same way that it was cool when a bunch of major label record executives showed up to cbgb's to see this underground band called the replacements uh you know they played Dolly Parton covers and the ballad of Jet Clampett and we're just hammered and just made a shit show and said, do we have a record contract yet? You know what I mean? It's like the fucking sticking it to the guy. It just so happens to be that the guy that you like indirectly stuck it to wasn't a part of the, you know, record industry military industrial complex of sure. well, uh-huh. well yeah and i mean like you know more to the point i think if i'm gonna like take responsibility for this whole thing like the way i should i was even sticking it to brett gerwitz i was sticking it to matt 
and Rob and Slapstick for daring to be a band that was so good that they didn't need me and me being yeah. so afraid that that was the truth, you know, like, mm-hmm. uh, like I, I, I'm not many things, Tim, but I'm smart enough to know when I'm the dumbest person in the room. And in slapstick, I was always the dumbest person in the room. Yeah. And like, and you know, when by virtue of being like the lead singer, and getting told by people that like my band specifically uh-huh. was like, you know, life changing or world changing or whatever. And then like knowing that I didn't have anything to do with that really, that I'm just like, you know, along for the ride with these like actual geniuses. Um, I feel like that like built up in me for a long time. And the explosion was, I was like, we don't need to be on fucking Epitaph Records. You know, fuck that. It didn't have anything to do... It didn't even really have anything to do with Matt and Rob or, or like, anything like that, you know? Mm -hmm. It it wasn't like I was... I wasn't even mad at them. I think it was was me. I was... I was planting the explosions on my own boat. Yeah. You know? Um, The... um other thing that i did want to clarify and now that we're like so far removed from the event it's gonna sound like i'm pouring salt in but this was also like you were gonna be the first hellcat band right yeah that's what um brett was saying and like i talked to tim a little bit because tim had dated my girlfriend at time heather right before me mm-hmm. tim tim armstrong mm-hmm. from rancid um and so we kind of knew each other a little bit and uh and you know bro was like yeah we're doing this thing it's called hellcat it's gonna be a scott thing and we're gonna put your record out and then we're gonna put out a comp but we want you guys to be like the first thing Fuck, you know yeah, and yeah. which um you know, I don't know. I still feel like it's kind of like got an honest Don's kind of like fucking smell to it to me. It's like not quite good enough to be on Fat Records. Try Honest Don's. Sure. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, so, I remember like, that comp and it, it didn't have a ton of memorable stuff on it. That's the one thing actually about that meeting and that experience and that overall like business proposition where I'm like, uh, were I less self-aware, I'd be, I, I could really plant my flag in that and be like, of course, you know? Sure. It would have had a ceiling. He wasn't going to, he wasn't going to make you the next offspring. Yeah. Well, and, and, and who cares? Like, I don't think we wanted to be the next offspring or anything like that, but but like, at the same time, uh, I don't know if I want to be the experience of your, uh, like uh, the experiment uh-huh. of your of your new label. It's like you've got a great label. You already put out like you know No Effects Rancid. Like we're like the band that's coming up like that. And again, that wasn't really my problem. That wasn't. 
what I was railing against. I was railing against myself, like not being uh, good enough in slapstick, but all of a sudden being like the face of the band. Yeah. And feeling like I couldn't keep up that charade or whatever. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I mean, it was like very psychologically, it's like obvious. Well, yeah. And that's, I think we've made so many references to it. Um, talking, you know, about, uh, good times gone. It being like, Oh my God, you're like, you're, you're turning 18. That's the scariest thing ever. You're like, your friend moves away to college. Your friend's basically dead. Um, and then when we, when we started this whole thing, um, talking about slapstick, it's like, cool. Your teenage years get uh, analyzed to such an extent that you have this moment that, I mean, I fucking like don't like the way that I quit the hot dog cart at Home Depot, but I don't have to think about it every day. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, for what it's worth... Um, I was um, reading the zines about um, when you quit that hot dog cart, <laughs> and I personally think that you did a pretty good job, man. Um, so, I want to ask you this, and if you don't, if if you don't want this in the episode, it doesn't have to be in the episode. But if you do want it in the episode, this is going to be a real cool little moment that we have before the question. Um, your relationship with Dan Adriano, uh, Hannaway, mm -hmm. Robbie, it seems to all three of those have gotten better. I know that with stamps, it's difficult. You know, how, how are you feeling on it now? You know, is there, are there things that you wish you could do? Um, you know, the thing is that, like, with Matt, it's just, we've grown into very different types of guys. We were already very different types of guys, and um, I love and admire him immensely. And, I mean, I think that's very clear from this, mm -hmm. uh, the whole series, right? And he taught me so much, and I really have regrets that he thinks that I'm just like a fucking asshole. And I think that's what it is. I mean, like, you know, he, when we did that riot fest, he told me not to curse. And I just like went into autopilot mode and started talking about like somebody getting a blow job, mm -hmm. uh, in the Ferris wheel, which was a funny bit, but it's because I'm like, at this point, hardwired to go for funny bits when I'm on stage particularly in front of like 30,000 people because that's who my life is, you know? And, mm -hmm. and he had asked me specifically not to curse. And I willfully ignored that, I guess is the way that he would see it. And I can't blame him. I can't blame him for being mad at me about like this, what we're talking about right now. Cause it was like me being childish and it, it's like, I think every single incident in which I 
in which the relationship between me and Matt has been chipped away has been due to me in some way being childish. And uh, so I I love Matt. Like, I would speak at his funeral, you know? I would want him to speak at mine. Like, I can't can't think of Mm -hmm. somebody that I have more respect for, you know? Um, I guess I, like, I just think that we're not the same kind of person, you know? And, like, Uh I can, like, definitely kick my own ass about, like, not being able to be the kind of guy that would be Matt's friend. But at a certain point, it's like, I fucked it up so many times. Like, it's like kind of a Tim Tim Casher lyric at this point. It's like, oh, maybe I'm just, you know, not for you. Yeah. (laughs) You know? Yeah. And, And, like, um, it doesn't have anything to, you know, I, I don't think in the in the times that we've hung out ever that he's done a single thing that's bummed me out. Mm-hmm. You yeah. know, but but I understand why he doesn't want to hang out with me, and it, you know, it, it's a. I don't like the phrase "it is what it is" because it's a. You, you can just say it is because that, yeah. <laughs> that's like really what you know. Yeah. Um, uh, but like, that's just the way it is, man. Like, uh, what, what I do rubs Matt the wrong way. And I have gone in many, um, circles, some of which are like, yeah, I'm rubbing you the wrong way on purpose. And some of which are like, ooh, didn't mean to do that. You know, yeah. and, and like, but I, but it's like I can't get out of it. And so it's like maybe I'm just not for him. And it, which is fine. Um, I'm just very thankful that we're buddies uh, when we were. And, you know, if you think of time as this flat circle, as I think that's what the kids talk about these days. Um, uh, Zoomers especially. <laughs> yeah, I still consider... Matt to be one of my best friends. He's like one of my most important mentors. And, uh, you know, I love him and I understand why he doesn't want to talk to me. I, I get it. Yeah. That's about it. Yeah. Um, I think that we have, all of us have people like that. Um, you know, the, <laughs> just the ones that, uh, manage to be the worst in front of. Um, I think that you have, not it it's not that you've gone out of your way to praise him in in any sort of like attempt to make up for for things um but it's clear it's clear that you have you know a, a very very deep uh respect and appreciation for him and i i got to think that that goes somewhere well the thing is, it doesn't matter. I mean, it's like, you know, anybody can say anything on a fucking, uh, you know, public forum. You know, I mean, Donald Trump is like, I've no one's done more for the gays than I have. You know, yeah, and, uh-huh. and it's like, and it's like that, that only goes so far, man. It's like for Matt Stamps, standing next to me is like, um, it's not fun. 
he doesn't he doesn't like the things that come out of my mouth yeah. when he stands next to me and, or what happens and like I, I get it you know and it's it's disappointing to me but like I can't the last thing I would want anybody to think is that I sit here and like praise him in the hopes that he would fucking no hear no it or definitely like it not or I hope that I didn't know, put that like out that's not what I no 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 but like because like that's not the way it is. Mm-hmm. It's like, and, and also, it's like I've been talking about this guy for now three episodes as like one of the smartest, most savvy people I've ever met in my life. Like, he's not like going to listen to a PR campaign about <laughs> me thinking he's smart when he was 16 and then all of a sudden be like, ooh, I like you again. You know, he's going to more like be like, Dude, I asked you very specifically not to do this because of my job, and you did it, and like in like one of the most grotesque ways possible, um, like, and that was after I already was like coming back from you fucking up the idea of us being on Epitaph Records. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, like, like, like there's so many like stairs mm-hmm. to climb. At this point, and like, and like, yeah, this this isn't like fucking politics. I get it. I know, I know where I stand, and I know where I deserve to stand with Matt. I just, uh, but it doesn't it doesn't change the fact that like, and you know what? I maybe not for nothing. I bet Matt would have a, like a nice thing or two to say about me. I also, know that he would. Even. I you know, know like, that he uh, would. <laughs> this is fucked up. It makes it sound like we hate each other, and I don't think that's the case. I think it was just like an understanding that we would just not get along. Yeah, you know? I think that it's uh, uh, you know it's fair to um, uh, attribute twenty five years and uh, and a really uh, you know uh, uh, eventful. Um, relationship <laughs> like yeah that's gonna be it's gonna be complex yeah yeah but like you know it's not even really just that I have so much admiration for him and his abilities but also that like he's just not in music anymore yeah he doesn't even have a guitar wow. I don't think you know and he's so talented it's it's crazy. And I mean, like, you know, he's, he's wiped his hands of the whole thing. It's fine. But like, and I'm obviously uh, part of that in a way, but what a loss for everybody. That's not him. Cause mm. obviously he only like, if he wanted to do it, he would yeah. do it. It's like Phil Jackson said to Michael Jordan after the first retirement, I think you're robbing the world. I want to <laughs> fuck you so bad. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this story, you know, when you likened yourself to, or when you liken the Lawrence arms to the replacements, like, this is where it starts for me. This um, shooting yourself in the foot and creating your own path, it starts here. Yeah, I mean, it really does. Um you know, there's like, there's a real like, um, how good is your scope uh, thing about shooting yourself in the foot? 
Like Danny had a really mm-hmm. good scope and missed his foot entirely. Hanaway blew off his entire foot, and I just like shot off my toe. You know? Yeah. <laughs> like, uh, so there's like, it's it's interesting, but yeah, this was just this was a really good high school girlfriend, like. Like, yeah. If you did, if you dated like Kate Moss when you were in high school, mm-hmm. you know, and you kind of like held on for dear life, and then at some point, you were like, "You know what, bitch? I don't need you. Please still need me. Please still need me. Please." You yeah. know, and she was like, "Well, all right then. Goodbye." <laughs> and you're like, oh, "Damn," you know, like, <laughs> like. Uh, it was a really good high school girlfriend, but it's not going to last, you know? Yeah, yeah. And the, the, the good old-fashioned Midwestern, uh, go away, go away, love me, please. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm, well, mm-hmm. I think that the um, the climb to the top is, it's long, but fucking... You get there. You get there in a uh, in a seriously profound way, um, and I'm excited to get into those years. Yeah, you know, it is. Um, I assume what you're referring to is the fact that the Lawrence Arms are now the best punk band in the whole world. And That's right. It, it is astounding that I started out in the best ska band in the whole world, and then went into a band that nobody loved whatsoever. <laughs> um, where we didn't even love ourselves, you know, just a horrible relationship. We dated, we went from dating Kate Moss to dating Naomi Campbell, where she just threw phones at us the whole time. And, when you uh, started to say Naomi Campbell, <laughs> I thought you were going to say Neil Hennessy. <laughs> and now we're finally dating Anna Nicole Smith, who just loves us for who we are. <laughs> Well, uh, my friend, this was a fantastic uh, episode of this podcast and a fantastic uh, three-parter that we got to uh, enjoy uh, Slapstick from just uh, glad hand days to uh, to walking away from something that seemed like uh, it was going to be the, the greatest thing. And... Uh, now we're on to uh, a different road on this road to the Skeleton Coast. Uh, <laughs> saying road really weird. I don't know if you noticed that, but both, oh no, both sure. times you said it really I'll, weird. Yeah, I'll I'll I'll, uh, <laughs> I'll figure that out in post. Um, Brendan, yes. What would you like to talk about next week? Let's talk about next week because I think next week is what the week before. Skeleton Coast comes out. We should probably talk about uh, Guided Tour of Chicago, man. Um, that's where the Lawrence Arms started. It's it's almost as weird and fascinating as the slapstick story, and it will set the table for where our band eventually came to be and remains now. And uh, with the full understanding that we didn't even talk about the first eight songs on the slapstick record yet. Well, I think that that would be a good thing to do over on Patreon. 
We will talk about those eight songs on Patreon. That's a great idea. You know what? Maybe I'll get Kellenberger to come talk about them with us. See, if you join our Patreon, patreon.com slash better sandwich, there's a chance that you, just like our loyal patron, Rob Kellenberger, can call in and talk to us about slapstick songs. How fucked up is it that Rob pays for this? And I want to like... like and I'm like, like would, would, you, would, you, would you please come on and make it uh, <laughs> so more people pay for this? <laughs> it's a good idea. That capitalism, baby. <laughs> we thank you all for joining us this week. Invite you to come back next week and our discussion on a guided tour of Chicago. Uh, we do have a few more weeks before Skeleton Coast comes out on July 17th. Um, please rate and subscribe (laughs) (laughs) rate and subscribe uh write us a review patreon.com slash better sandwich seven bucks a month gets you access to wonderful discussion including uh talks with rob kellenberger uh dan andriano chris number two tom may patreon.com slash better sandwich matt allison You're such a bitch. You're, 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 you're such a horror for the band, guys. Hey, come on. In front of everybody? Matt Allison has recorded every single one of those people, except for Chris number two. We'll be back here on the feed next week. Looking forward to it. We will see you then. Thanks, Bubba. Love you guys. Thanks. Bye. Bye.